0: The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. Please consider becoming a Partially Examined Life citizen, which gets you ad-free access to all of our episodes, hours of bonus content, and our not-school learning community. Or support us on Patreon, where even a dollar's pledge yields great rewards. If you click through the Amazon banners at PartiallyExaminedLife.com every time you shop, you'll be supporting the podcast at no additional cost to you. To learn more, visit PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash support. Now please enjoy the show. We're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 129 is something like Is religious faith irrational? We read a bunch of snippets of articles presented in the final chapter of Paul Helms' 1999 Oxford Reader, Faith and Reason, which includes selections by Anthony Flew, Alvin Plantinga, Richard Swinburne, William Alston, Peter Van Inwagen, and others. You can join the discussion, get the text, and lots more information at PartiallyExaminedLife.com. This is Mark Linson-Meyer, broadcasting from the Atheist Hermeneutic Circle in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Wes
1: allwyn in uh, godless Boston, Massachusetts.
2: This is Nathan Gilmore, both a sinner and finite in Athens, Georgia. And this is
3: Rob Dyer in evidentially beautiful Belleville, Illinois. All right, so this is a
0: groundbreaking episode for us in that we have two guests— That don't know each other, that are from from different things. We've seldom had two guests, and those guys were in the same band. So, but really, you Christians, you're all in the same band.
3: (laughs) Absolutely. It's two on two today, gentlemen.
0: But before the guest introductions, let me just read through the list of readings. We read 14 very short articles. Anthony Flew, The Presumption of Atheism. Norwood Russell Hansen, The Agnostics Dilemma. Richard Swinburne, The World and Its Order. Alvin Plantinga, Is Belief in God Properly Basic? Merrill Westfall, Sin and Reason. Stephen Kahn, The Irrelevance of Proof to Religion. Basil Mitchell, Faith and Criticism. William Alston, Experience in Religious Belief. Peter Van Inwagen, Clifford's Principle. Again, Richard Swinburne, The Voluntariness of Faith. The editor, Paul Helm, Faith and Merit. And finally, Robert M. Adams, The Sin of Unbelief. I've put that list in our episode description, so if you get confused by all the names flying around here, just look at the screen of your mobile device or computer or whatever. So this is one we had long planned. So Rob is the producer of the God Complex Radio podcast. Yes, indeed. And I was on that a couple years ago, and that's when we decided that this was supposed to be a... An interfaith, what is the appropriate term for for, uh, an exchange? But But our our scheduling, yeah, our scheduling is slow enough that it took Nathan Gilmore from the Christian Humanist podcast to come along and say, why don't you do that with us instead to kick us in gear and say, we're never going to do this twice. So let's just do it once. (laughs) (laughs) But this has been hot on the top of our minds since we did a couple of, uh, We did one on the arguments for the existence of God, and we did one right after that on the new atheists. So this on faith is one Wes and I have long talked about of doing something. Yeah, you know, the the arguments for the existence of God are sort of beside the point. Our guest on that episode, who uh, ran a religious blog, you know, was like, well— Basically, we could discuss them rationally because none of us had really any stake in them. It sort of was irrelevant to your faith. Well, so if arguments for the existence of God aren't what faith hinges on, well, there still must be some rationale behind faith, whether it's I am faithful because it lets me pursue a better life or... I am faithful because I did Pascal's Wager and determined that I would rather be wrong and harmlessly deluded for my life than wrong and end up in hell, or many other things that could sort of broadly be considered rationality. So maybe let's have our guests introduce themselves, say something about your podcast, and maybe give us a little opening statement. Nathan, you want to start?
2: Certainly. I am Nathan Gilmore. I am a professor of English at a small Christian college in Franklin Springs, Georgia, that's in the Athens area. I've been there for about seven years. My PhD is in English, but before that I did a master's degree in Biblical Studies and a master's degree in English. And before that even, I was at a small Christian liberal arts college where I did a double major in English and Philosophy. Our podcast is the Christian Humanist Podcast. We've been going since about 2009. We try to release an episode a week during the school year, and it really started when three of us who were good friends there in the Ph.D. program moved to different states or different parts of Georgia and decided we wanted to keep having the coffee shop conversations we used to have as grad students, and we've just kind of been doing that ever since. So we're now up to six different shows, 15 on-air personalities. We're having a great time at it.
0: Yeah, it's a really good chemistry there, obvious affinities to uh, what we do here. Maybe the biggest difference is that you're all, well, you you say, I know you're an English guy, but you also teach philosophy there, right? You teach the philosophy course. I know it's a small school.
2: Yes, that's honestly one of the joys of teaching at a small liberal arts college like that is that I teach uh, old English for foreign language credit. I teach literature classes, rhetorical theory, literary theory, intro to philosophy, whatever they will let me get in front of a classroom to teach, I'll do it. Christian humanism, we should explain, is
0: not – when I first heard that, I, as you explained on your first episode, it just means Christians who read the humanities. It doesn't mean kind of some weird hybrid of humanism because it's – what we think of humanism is secular humanism is right. what most people – that brings to mind.
2: Right. Our neighbors on the internet, christianhumanist.net – are dedicated to precisely what you just named, but we at uh, ChristianHumanist org really are trying to.
4: Re- we're, we're trying to
2: reclaim the legacy of Desiderius Erasmus and cats like that who want to do the best philosophy we can for the sake of the kingdom of God. So that's kind of what our our thing is. Where we have a blast doing it. I mean, that's my main thing.
0: Well, and some of the discussions are sharing your experiences of that culture, which I've been really dipping into your podcast over the last couple of weeks. So, you know, I'm always fascinated by different academic niches and what folks get really excited about. But then you've got a, a bunch of episodes also like on more current movies and things. And there's nothing particularly religious even about a lot of them. Like they're just plain old, good, interesting academic discussions.
2: Oh, sure. We did the original Star Wars trilogy, did an episode on Ghostbusters the Back to the Future movies. So yeah, I mean, you know, whatever it occurs to us that might be interesting to talk about and dig into from the perspective of Christian confession, that's kind of what we do.
0: And some of it, it's you all read the same book and talk about it kind of like we do here more often it seems like you're a little more organized than we are, that that you rotate one of you is the host and kind of d- t- treat it more like a panel discussion than a free-for-all. And it's, hey, Michael, why don't you talk, you know, give the historical background of this thing and then, David, you talk about this, That you know, that it's three scholars sharing the depth of their experience on these things just as often. I mean, I guess more, you've done so many episodes, you've, you've run out of things that you, uh, before, <laughs> you, that you already know about, so you're reading more stuff fresh.
2: Right, right. And a lot of times the stuff that we read about in the nineties 90- minutes before we started recording.
0: And then uh, switching over to Rob, so God Complex, I had listened to a lot of that when I was on it a couple years ago. I know, Rob, that format is more two hosts, neither of which is you, but you occasionally appear and certainly are very involved in what's going on there. But just interviewing people about their books, and it's aimed at the clergy more or less, but is of general interest too, but there's a lot of just, and sort of in the liberal Christian spectrum. Is that, does that all sound right?
3: Yeah, that's basically it. One of the things we try to do is give voice to some modern Christian thinkers that maybe wouldn't normally get a voice. And these are usually folks who have written a book and we're trying to help them along and promote what they're doing and their way of bringing us into new ways of thinking about God and our faith and Yeah, the host, Carl Howard Merritt and Derek Weston, they do all the hard work of reading the book and really getting into it and then interviewing the guest. And I'm just the producer guy in the background trying to keep things moving along. I think that what happened was that I listened to the podcast for a couple of years and I was calling in or sending emails in with like, all these uh, different suggestions about the podcast. And finally, they said, well, why don't you do it? (laughs) And so I was like, okay, I'll produce it. That's fine. And it wasn't too bad for me. My background actually originally is in electrical engineering. I'm a second career clergy. In addition to helping out with the podcast, I'm the pastor and head of staff at First United Presbyterian Church in Belleville, Illinois, which is a suburb of St. Louis. It's really been interesting to me as we go through both the producing of that podcast. And again, it just came to me as we were going through the readings this week, preparing for this podcast, how interesting it is to try to insert in the real life of a Christian congregation into some of these discussions. Because so often, us preacher types, we get out of seminary and it's like, it's as if we've been trained to work in churches that simply don't exist. (laughs) And so we get out there and we're shocked to find out, what? You're not all reading Calvin? What's going on here? (laughs) And so... When I started through these readings this week, I gotta tell you, I was like, oh, good Lord, this doesn't apply to anything I see in the regular church. And then, and then, and then we started to get into con. And so that, that would be this. Stephen Kahn, not Immanuel Kant. <laughs> just to, just to, just to, <laughs> or not
1: Kahn yeah. as in the wrath of Kahn.
3: <laughs> well, actually, I, I was going to you know, make a connection there, but I'll, I'll, I'll hold back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these were mostly like two-page articles. Well, so Wes, why
0: don't you tell us what, what you came... I mean, This the reading selection was your idea. Really driving <laughs> the topic was, was your idea. Say something about what you wanted to get out of this.
1: So coming out of our last discussion of the proofs for the existence of God. I was more interested in this question of whether religious faith is reasonable, because I think part of the gist of some of the current cultural trends like new atheism is not just that there's no proof, but there's no evidence for God. And because there's no evidence that believers are just crazy, faith is just it's uh, irrational and incompatible with science, although we didn't read specifically about the relationship between faith and the sciences tonight, we're doing a more general discussion. That's sort of one of the narratives. So yeah, I wanted to get into this question of religious epistemology, the broader question of whether it's, regardless of whether one actually believes, of whether it's fair to call believers crazy.
0: <laughs> or, or the really nice <laughs> so, way that one, one of the authors puts it, noetically substandard. <laughs> yes, that was quite endearing. Has to do with mind. I had to look up what that was.
1: Because you don't have ancient Greek. <laughs> Noesis and didn't... Noema,
0: that didn't tell me anything that they have to do with – <laughs> I know who's <laughs> the right. So who wants to start? I mean do we want to start with these first uh, – the first couple selections in here, Anthony Flew, the presumption of atheism, and Norwood Russell Hansen's The Agnostics Dilemma sort of go together and they you know have to do with this – exactly what you were saying, Wes, that wouldn't you think in normal life that you should have reasons for the things you believe? <laughs> Right. And if you want to make some claim, then people will say, well, why do you say that? And you have to point out some experience you have or there are a number of things you could say, but there has to be some reason. So if Flew, the way he puts that is the presumption of atheism is just if you're arguing for something positive, the existence of something, whether it be the existence of God or the Loch Ness Monster or the teapot that exists on the other side of the moon, which is Bertrand Russell's example, I believe, then the burden of proof is on you. What do you think of, uh, of that claim? That sort of, I'll say, prejudices the case, but intentionally from flu's perspective.
3: Well, I would say that I'll accept that. I don't have any problem with being told that, okay, as a believer, you've got to step up to the plate and prove this, somehow demonstrate this. I think that that's been one of the problems with the Christian faith is that we've gotten to rely so long on culture and social pressures and norms that in a way we've become kind of lazy about standing up for the basis of our belief. And so, you know, as I read it, I just kind of thought, yeah, that's fine. I'll take it. Give me the ball. Let's go.
2: (laughs) And see, as I read it, I had a flashback to every threaded message board from 1998 I ever frequented. This business of the onus lies on the person making the proposition, you know. Yeah, I mean, I recognize the argument. It's one of those that on its own terms, you're right. I mean, It is valid, it does stand the test of logic, but it's one of those things, and I'm sure we're going to get to this later on in the episode, that when I get to thinking about it, it doesn't really produce any change in conviction for me. Now, that might be a defect on my part, but when I read Anthony Flew, I say, yeah, that's interesting, but that's about as far as I get with it.
0: Well, is that because you think that – fine, the burden – like Rob was just saying, the, the burden of proof is on us, the theists, but we can meet that burden of proof. That's fine. That's what Richard Swinburne that we read argues. You know Anybody that actually – well, Swinburne goes so far as – yeah, those arguments that you gave in the past episode – you know, because he's talking to us directly uh, on the existence of God, (laughs) Uh, Uh, those actually work, and they work splendidly. He's a very cheery fellow, but most of the other folks we read here, Plantinga and others, want to say flu is wrong, that there's something wrong with asking for justification, and we can get what the very views against that are. But I mean, I know, Wes, when uh, we were co-TAs for, I think, our first course at the University of Texas, and uh, the prof that we were under used this idea of the burden of proof, and you just thought that was ridiculous. That was a bad importation from the law courts, right? Where the notion of burden of proof makes sense.
1: How do you remember this and I don't remember this?
0: (laughs) I don't know. why My memory attaches to particular ideas like this less than to people or
1: events. Okay.
2: The way that I learned to think about this largely in too many hours spent on those goofy threaded message boards is to pose the question, who is it that gets to decide what is positive and what is negative? So in other words, to posit a universe that is self-contained without reference to deity is that a positive claim or is that a claim minus one element yeah the way that i imagine things is and i know that i'm you know i'm being influenced by other thinkers here and the oh and shoot do we still have to follow the name dropping rule No, go ahead. All right, all right. We read a dozen different authors. Yeah,
1: we read too many people referring to too many other people to abide by that role.
2: Okay, very good. Okay, so I am allowed to say Wittgenstein. (laughs) Wittgenstein's basic approach to things is to keep posing the question, why is it that you consider that claim the basic one upon which others are built rather than vice versa? And, of course, the methodology of the thought experiment is precisely to reframe the narrative so that the onus of proof keeps moving around so that this notion that this is a legal proceeding assumes a great deal as far as what kind of discourse we're having.
1: I guess to frame the larger debate, we should bring in this term evidentialism. This is the idea that we're not justified in believing anything. Although to be precise, flu is actually talking about knowledge. So knowledge claims, but uh, we're not justified in believing anything unless we have evidence for it or unless you can phrase that in different ways. And Basically, yeah, you have to have positive evidence for anything you believe. And I think um, in many cases, that's not exactly the way belief works.
2: And honestly, if I I can turn over to Hansen's piece real quick, the scenario that he lays out that would be proper evidence for the existence of God, I'll admit that when I read this, and let me just summarize it real quickly, he says that if a bearded figure looking somewhat like Zeus appeared in the sky breaking through the clouds with glowing lights all around him, and that not just one person, but all of the people saw this at the same time, and this thing said, all of you who are making arguments against the existence of God, just knock it off. And Rob, I'll be interested to hear your take on this, because I come from a more evangelical sort of background. But if that happened, I imagine I would be the first in line to start telling people that wasn't God, whatever that was.
3: Yeah. Throughout my discernment of whether or not to go into the ministry and even afterwards, I used to say often to folks, all I want is a 20 foot Jesus appearing at the end of my bed, tell me what to do with my life. <laughs> and I have to say like, no, that would be really, really bad because if the 20 foot Jesus shows up, first of all, he's all hunched over because I don't have that high ceiling, ceilings. And second of all, that would just be really frightening. And I would consider myself to have gone insane, not to have had a divine revelation. So, you know, I think that giving that type of case and saying that, okay, this would have this effect, I don't know. That's not the way it would land with me, I have to admit, despite all my faith and trust. And I certainly have had my moments where I've felt the presence of God, but never quite a Zeus-like figure breaking through the clouds. I did notice that at the end of the flu article, I did write myself a little note that said, yeah, yeah, this is fine about like accepting the burden of proof. But let's just all acknowledge that this is kind of a new way of thinking that if we were back in the third or fourth century, we'd be looking at the atheist and saying, well, you're the one with the crazy off the wall belief.
1: So, yeah, and I'm not sure you need to accept the burden of proof here because Mm -hmm. that assumes that evidentialism is right. I mean, the other way to go is to say that belief can be warranted even in cases where you don't have definitive evidence.
2: Right. And see, I I guess in in Hanson's scenario, I would think that space aliens who received a transmission of Monty Python and the Holy Grail had landed. (laughs) Again, because I don't really have much at stake. I don't have a horse in the race with the sentence, God exists, so much as I do with, we believe that in one God, the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, so on and so forth. So the particularism of the Christian creed, it strikes me, would fly in the face of an apparition like that. And, and Rob, am I overplaying this? I want to toss this back to you because you're the clergy here. You're going into the deep end
3: a little bit, but I'd be willing to go out there with you a while. You know, I actually wrote down next to, okay, in my notes next to this example with the Zeus, so I thought, okay, good point. But I think that to me it was just a little bit of a distraction, that example that was given by Hansen. And I mm-hmm. thought that the comments that were made about that, you know, in the beginning where he said that it, it might remain reasonable for one to persist as a believer— even after further thought has led him to deny God's existence. I mean, that's going to start mm-hmm. tying in with some of the later readings that we had about this kind of inertia of belief that is there, not just in faith, but in science itself. That's a, They call it the principle of tenacity in the Mitchell article, mm-hmm. which is much later. We cannot flip-flop around based on every little bit of evidence or consideration of evidence that comes forward and these arguments that are in our court, I, I appreciate what you're saying, West, and saying like, okay, I don't think necessarily the burden is on you, and it, maybe you're assuming some things when you take it on. For me, it's kind of an acknowledgement that looking at where our culture is now, like not in the, the grand cosmos of perfect philosophical argument and seeking of truth with a capital T, I need to accept the onus, but I think that in the current culture, given the current climate, I do feel as a person of faith that I better take that on. So when we
1: ask this question of whether faith can be rational, we have to say what rationality is, right? And one way to say that is to talk about the necessity of evidence. But then, they, then we ask the question of what evidence is. And so for, in the Hansen case, this idea that we need empirical evidence, we need God as an apparition in front of us in order to believe. That's a very strict criterion for evidence. The way I view this is that to be rational, it's very important that it not contradict other things we accept, right? It's important that there not be something contradictory about belief in God. And then the other part of it is just that it be well-motivated. In other words, you can think of God as a kind of theory meant to explain something. And even though it's not one that we can conduct empirical experiments as a follow up to confirm or disconfirm the theory, that doesn't mean the theory doesn't have explanatory value or is well motivated. So, for instance, Russell's teapot example, or I think another popular one these days is the
2: the flying spaghetti monster. I was wondering when he would make an appearance.
1: (laughs) Yeah, those are really, I think, poor examples because the teapot or the spaghetti monster, there's no rationale for them. They may be in the same position as God in the sense that there's no empirical evidence for or against. On the other hand, they're not theories that are trying to explain anything. They don't fit into scheme in that that way. There's no explanatory value to them. And also, they're empirical entities. And I think in many cases, we... The standards that we are applying to empirical entities are more stringent. We do tend to think, well, yeah, my presumption is that i'm I'm not going to believe in the spaghetti monster until I see evidence of it, but the whole point of God as a theory is that he's not spatiotemporal he's not even an e necessarily, but so right, thank you um. <laughs> Yeah, so God is this non-empirical entity, and we wouldn't really want, and, you know, although I I think different religious traditions have have, uh, at different times treated treated God as if he could come down and interact with us in one form or another. But I think in some ways, it's kind of a setback. The apparition is, and I think you guys were kind of alluding to this, it'd be kind of a setback theologically if God were to manifest himself empirically, right? Because it's, it doesn't fit in with the whole point of God as a theory, which is to explain the spatiotemporal as a whole and to stand outside it in that sense.
3: I even, yeah, when you got to the Plantinga article, we even get the God versus the Great Pumpkin, which yeah. <laughs> I, I thought was quite hilarious. And yeah, so
1: that's another version of the same thing. Yeah, exactly mm-hmm. what
3: you're saying. I think one of the things that I felt was missing when I was reading the Hansen article is that I wanted to say, well, what about some humility or an acceptance of the limits of reason? I find myself walking into the subject of really anything about God with a huge amount of humility. And a willingness to accept the limits of my own ability to reason things out, and so you know, when we say that that we have to limit everything to evidence and and to reason, that presupposes that that is the key to truth and reality. That's yeah. uh,
1: We do need to have some standards, right? We we need something in between. It's a free for all, and you can believe whatever Mm -hmm. you want. You can believe in the pumpkin, the great pumpkin, right? Right. Somewhere between
3: evidence and great pumpkin,
1: and (laughs) and, or, or treating every problem as if it must be resolvable by scientific inquiry or it's meaningless.
2: Another troubling aspect of Anthony Flew came in the article that Mark sent along in the email, the Theology and Falsification article.
0: So just some background, Flew, though, this uh, particular article that we read was from 1976. He was sort of best known for a very short article from 1950, Theology and Falsification, which was uh, something presented at some society that C.S. Lewis started, where they would just give these talks to each other. (laughs) Yes, the uh,
2: Socratic Society, I think.
0: Exactly. And he claims that it might be the most widely read philosophical publication of the second half of the 20th century, translated into 40 languages. So it seemed worth pulling out since it's like a page long.
2: Certainly. And in this piece, he presents articles very similar to the ones we've been summarizing up to this point, but it ends with a question that on its face makes a a certain degree of sense. But when I started thinking about it ethically, I mean, it, it, it really just turned my stomach. The question reads thus... What would have to occur or to have occurred to constitute for you a disproof of the love of or the existence of God? It is a question that turns God into an empirical entity that can be proved or disproved. But again, thinking about the way that religious faith has actually shaped my own story as a human being, This just struck me as strange ethically. It would be as if when I got married, I were asking myself on the way down the aisle, what would have to occur or to have occurred for me to get a divorce right now? That is a question that strikes me as something you might have to confront if circumstances altered beyond what you could anticipate. But to start asking that preemptively strikes me as ethically squirrely.
0: Right. Well, so a couple of the later articles that we took on get into that kind of the metaphor of faith, not just as believing a proposition without what we would normally think of as evidence, but faith as trust. And there's something self-reinforcing about that, that in fact, Mm -hmm. that article, Robert M. Adams, The Sin of Unbelief. He says you can't separate the idea of not believing God when he speaks and not believing the proposition God exists or not believing in God or God's goodness. Mm -hmm. And so he specifically says, I'm not going to try to get into the mind of an atheist, but for somebody that already is in the position where they have theistic leanings, they've had some religious sense, they've heard the calling in some sense, for those people to then have doubts, it becomes very personal. Once you've heard that, well, then if you start to change your mind, like, well, maybe I was just wrong about this. It's not just a matter of I'm changing my belief. There's a little part of me that will always still believe. And if I turn to that little part of me, it's going to say, you are betraying God. You're not just changing your mind. You're actually, it's a betrayal. Which to me is a pernicious thing. I was going to say hermeneutic circle. I'm not sure if that's the proper use of that term, which does show up in here, but it's definitely a circle, I guess, a similar one that I was going to bring up when Wes was talking about how uh, the flying spaghetti monster and the great pumpkin and these other entities don't have explanatory value, whereas God is supposed to have explanatory value is, well, you only think that the great pumpkin doesn't have explanatory value because of original sin. It's, uh, (laughs) it's... One of the other articles that we read, which is you might think that we could just use religious phenomenology, something like, come on, don't you – like Plantinga says this, one of the guys positively arguing for uh, religious faith here. Don't you – when you reflect on the starry sky, isn't it very natural to say, wow, that's such an impressive creation of God? That's just something that is sort of built into human beings tend to do that. And the uh, response to that, Meryl Westfall, one of the other things we read, sin and reason. Right.
2: Also, one of my favorite living philosophers.
0: Uh, yeah, he brings up uh, John Calvin as Plantiga does. Really, no. According to original sin, we do not naturally go towards God. It's only sort of after you've bought into it, after you've been cleansed, that your intuitions realign. And this really is Westfall talks specifically about the hermeneutic circle. The hermeneutic circle being that you only can understand something, you only can gain new knowledge by bringing your old knowledge, bringing your presumptions to bear. You can't just start, you know, rationality sort of sees, oh, you know, if you just start with an open mind and look at the evidence, then you'll all come to the same conclusion. Well, a lot of these folks like Westfall are saying, there's no such thing as an open mind. We all come with these, things that will push us toward one way or another. And uh, just like we've uh, talked in this podcast a lot about Nietzsche really ad hominem attacking believers that uh, from the point of view of, of uh, that he's coming from, there's something just kind of sick to wanting to give yourself up to a higher being. Come on, just be a man, stand up. And we saw in some of these readings exactly the same kind of ad hominem the opposite way. No, 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 it's original sin. It's that you non-believers are just so corrupt that that's what ultimately is driving your belief.
2: Mm-hmm. But Westfall is a consistent enough Paulinist that he also wants to say, believers, you also are beset with original sin. So whereas you might not be inclined towards atheism, you are inclined towards idolatry.
0: Let's just clarify, Pollinist meaning Apostle Paul, not, not, <laughs> not
1: a lover a pol- of Paul. Not a pollinator.
2: <laughs> I, I nominalized that, and that was terribly pretentious. I apologize. But yes, he he's a consistent <laughs> enough reader of St. Paul, there we go, that he wants to say that it's not only... I had your
3: back on that, Nathan.
2: <laughs> it's not only the atheist who is beset by original sin, but it's also the believer. And this is one of the places where I think Westfall is the strongest because... He says to the believers, okay, do you say that every kind of belief is going to be you know, affected by sin? Well, in that case, you should turn that critical eye on yourself and realize that every prayer that you speak is effectively a prayer to an idol and that your hope is not that you have a concept that corresponds to the creator of heavens and earth, but that that being, whoever that being is, can hear what it is that you pray even though your prayers are misdirected.
3: Yeah, I I really felt like the way that Westfall ended by saying, he says that in any case, for believers to draw a line between themselves and unbelievers and to find the noetic effects of sin only on the other side of that line is closer to epistemological Phariseeum than it is to taking Paul seriously. For unbelief is not only the way of suppressing the truth about God, it is only the most honest. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I was immediately drawn to the story In the Gospel of Mark in the Bible with uh, the man wants his son healed and tells Jesus, well, if you can. And Jesus says, if I can, you know, (laughs) kind of to him. And the response back, which is probably the most honest prayer that's ever been spoken and certainly recorded in the Bible is the father says, I believe, help my unbelief. And that resonates with people. I mean, when you talk about that in a faith setting, that line resonates. At some level, we all understand the idea that whatever it is that we believe, for whatever reason, whether it's some set of evidence we've lined up in our head or just that gut feeling we get, or, you know, we're just two steps above the great pumpkin in our faith development, whatever, there's something that resonates in people with the idea of, I believe, but I I need help with my unbelief. From my side of the theological spectrum, it really backs up that Reformed notion that faith is a gift. It's not something that we well up out of an amazing exercise of our will or of reason, but faith is something that comes to us as a gift despite our brokenness and despite the brokenness of this world. And so we need something more than just a set of reasonings to get ourselves there. And here's why I'll name drop a little bit with little Augustine, who said that, while it's, it's reason, you know, that brings us to the threshold of faith, it just can't take you through the door. And, you know, there's a real problem that a lot of the theologians of the years had with, they just, how do we explain the fact that we can't figure out this magic formula to get people to believe? You know, mm-hmm. there's not that one incredible sermon that just turns the whole, the crowds around. There's not just that one argument or evidence, and where so many have come to rest is to say that there is something that works above our reason or below, however you want to think of it, and that it is a spiritual experience to move into belief. It's not a exercise of will or intellect, which makes it very difficult for us to have this kind of conversation about it. I feel like at times that's used to shut down the argument, and instead I'd like to use that to engage the argument. I do feel like we got that a little bit in the readings, where it wasn't just thrown out there as like, take that. It was thrown out there as like, okay, so let's accept this. Let's stretch the notion of what is something that's a basic belief. And let's stretch that. In the Mitchell article, he really pointed out that, you know, this also applies to science. It's not like science walks around with its pure way of thinking. There's all kinds of biases there that's brought in and in how we approach understanding things about the physical world. Like I said, I don't, I don't want that to shut down the argument. I, I want it to just perhaps color it a little bit.
2: Right. But I think what Rob was just narrating is why a lot of these questions don't necessarily offend cats like Rob and myself who've spent some time in the pulpit, but they just strike us as alien. The stories that we hear as we talk to people who are coming into the faith and going out of the faith and so on and so forth has so little to do with the onus of proof in a syllogistic throwdown. The stories are complex stories, but they are just in a very different register from what Flu and Hanson. and I would say even Swinburne is doing
0: so th- there's a lot that was just in Rob's speech that I think we got to slow down and unpack, but oh yeah, <laughs> since,
2: since I, <laughs> it's I, I, me.
3: I'm sorry
0: <laughs> this is going to be a long enough discussion, our normal two part over two hour <laughs> discussion. We're still sort of in the realm of opening statements as far okay. as I'm concerned, so that <laughs> was Rob's but I think we might as well throw out the person you brought up first, Rob Stephen Kahn, the irrelevance of proof to religion. And say a little bit about that since you're already getting to that point. And that the two things that came out first are, are that, which is one of the first points I made when we were coming into this. And then I think, was it his or was it Mitchell's? I'm kind of confusing some of these articles that was just really talking about different points of view. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It seems like a, a very obvious thing, but when you're trying to unpack it philosophically, what actually goes into a point of view? You just think differently about things. I know that uh, Peter van Inwagen, part of his point was intelligent people disagree about political questions, for instance, and philosophical questions. He, you know, he talks about you know, he and David Lewis are discussing this esoteric point in philosophy, and they both understand each other perfectly but yet they still remain of different minds about this thing. And so what is it? There must be something that is subjective, something that is personal that you're bringing to bear that's this hermeneutic circle thing or something that makes it so that different people are coming from different places. And part of what you were just outlining, Rob, actually, you know, is very foreign to me. You say, it resonates people with this, I believe, yet help me with my belief. That sounds bizarre to me. And my bringing up the whole John Calvin original sin thing strikes me as a pernicious trap, a pernicious self-reinforcing, oh, uh, you know, this doesn't seem natural to you, but of course it's not gonna seem natural to you because your instincts have been perverted by not already being a Christian. From somebody who is coming to things from a view closer to Anthony Flews, it's a lot to swallow. So if we can make it so that we can understand each other's various positions, or at least the positions as presented in these two-page arguments here, (laughs) these articles, we'll have made some progress.
3: Well, yeah, I think that what you've lifted up is to say, okay, as you come at this from different angles, different perspectives, some of this is just going to resonate with you more than others. And I got halfway through the Stephen Kahn article, and I just went back to the beginning of it and wrote, yes, 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 this is the... <laughs> say something about
0: what that article says. I didn't actually say anything about what the content
3: was. that's a, Well, I'm just going to read from the second paragraph in there where it says... One might expect that religious believers would be vitally interested in discussions on this subject. This is the philosophical proofs on the existence of God. One might suppose that when a proof of God's existence is presented and eloquently defended, believers would be most enthusiastic, and that when a proof is attacked and persuasively refuted, believers would be seriously disappointed." But this is not at all the case. Religious believers seem remarkably uninterested in philosophic proofs for the existence of God. They seem to consider discussion of such proofs as a sort of intellectual game which has no relevance to religious belief or activity. And goes on and gives us a little Kierkegaard and Kaplan after that. It's right. I mean, people of faith seem very uninterested in this. And in my particular context where I am, we are going through a huge emphasis of trying to help people articulate specifically what they believe to outline what is it that you believe that by doing that 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 might strengthen your resolve and and help you in your own faith and what we're finding is that people just don't think that way i mean there's still value to taking the time to sit down and try to articulate the particulars what you believe but it does not have the effect of like ah there it is finally my logical argument And I think that this must be very frustrating for the atheist that wants to debate the topic. It feels like it's very hard to get onto a common ground to have such a discussion because the experience of, I think, the average believer just doesn't seem to function out of philosophical proofs. And as I have seen people come to faith in different ways... The former engineer in me wants to just break it down and go, okay, okay, how did this happen? How did this 18-year-old young man suddenly get this fire within him and then want to come forward and be baptized and really jump into this faith? What happened there? And, and so many times I just cannot excavate it.
1: Yeah, let's say Wycon thinks, why proof is, is irrelevant. So I think on page 360, he uh, has a good succinct way of putting it. There's only one possible avenue to God's will. One must undergo a personal experience in which one senses the presence of God and apprehends which of the putative holy books is the genuine one. In other words, one must undergo a self-validating experience, one which carries its own guarantee of infallibility. And then later in the next paragraph, But notice that if he knows this, he has necessarily validated the existence of God, for unless he is absolutely certain that he has experienced God's presence, he cannot be sure that the message he has received is true. Thus he has no further need of a proof of God's existence. So this is an interesting idea about what counts as evidence and what doesn't. So, I mean, normally we we would think, for instance, that sensory perceptions count as a form of evidence. And the question here is whether these private inspired experiences of God really can count as evidence. So when he says that proof is irrelevant, I'm not seeing him as saying that evidence is irrelevant. I'm just, I, I just think he thinks that, The evidence has to be this immediate sort of intuitive type of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Right. The abstract
0: proofs are twice removed from that.
1: Yeah. yeah.
3: In the next paragraph, he then gives us another access point to it because he says, For one who does not undergo what he believes to be such a self-validating experience, several possibilities remain open. He may accept the validity of another person's self-validating experience. And I think that that's where it's saying that you've got to put in personal experience as part of this. And then it moves us out of just simply a philosophical proof that doesn't land with anyone. And I really thought that that was quite an insight there to also talk about that other possibility, which I believe is a very strong one.
1: Let's unpack that. What does it mean to accept the validity of another person's self-validating experience?
0: Is it a family member or preacher or something sort of describing the inspiration and you sort of get caught up in that and then can be eventually led to have that sort of feeling yourself? Is that what's being discussed here?
2: Let me jump on in this because this really narrates my own experience with the faith a lot more accurately than the personal divine mystical experience. I have not had anything resembling a mystical experience, but in the process of participating in worship and reading in the tradition and existing within Christian communities of various sorts, it's not been a syllogism, but it's been a process of enculturation whereby I've come to understand myself first and foremost as a part of this tradition that stretches back to Jesus and the Apostles. I don't think of myself as, for instance, first and foremost an American citizen who happens to check this box on the census form, but I tend to think of myself as someone who is part of this narrative of God's saving the world, who happens to have been born in Indianapolis and now lives in Georgia. It has a lot more to do with finding yourself situated in a certain narrative, and and, and I would submit that When I've talked to friends of mine who have left the faith for various reasons, that tends to be the way that they talk about it as well. You know, they come to think of themselves as inhabiting a different kind of story. It's not a single syllogism, you know, there must be adequate evidence. Evidence is lacking, ergo, no God. But rather, they come to understand themselves as part of a different kind of a story.
3: Yes, the identity of story. I think that's a huge point that you're making there, Nathan. And I think that can play to both sides, not just from the theist side, but also from the atheist side. Oh, certainly.
2: And and honestly, that's one of the things I find compelling about Christian theology is that it does locate that... I wouldn't call it sub-rational, but I would call it super-rational. So in other words, there is rationality, plus there are other factors that are important that lead someone towards or away from the faith. Because otherwise, you know, kind of like we talked about, Van Inwagen's point stands here, Otherwise, someone would have articulated an argument at some point and everyone would have become atheist, or someone would have articulated an argument at some point and everyone would have become something else, or you would be able to diagnose everyone who is one or the other as deficient mentally somehow, which I realized Richard Dawkins does, but that aside.
0: Yeah, Inwagen says on 372, if evidence can include insight or some other incommunicable element it may be that some of the philosophical and political beliefs of certain people are justified by the evidence available to them. Let's backtrack a little with this uh, burden of proof thing Mm -hmm. from uh, presumption of atheism. So the two parts of that phrase are separable, the proof part and the burden part. (laughs) So we've got a few whole other articles, and mostly we've been talking here about the proof part, what's going to count as evidence. But just to let's just kind of check the boxes off to get the content of the flu article out of the way and maybe move through the articles and get a little more order in the listener's mind of what each of these says, at least uh, at least the top four or five of them. So the idea was the first thing, Nathan, you had made the point that you would think Occam's razor would say, this is flu's term, that in the absence of evidence, it's more parsimonious to disbelieve, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You just leave the thing out. And it sounds like arguing for a god is an entity. So does that entity exist? And this is exactly the way that Hansen was talking about it. And the example that he gave is there is an oviparous bat, an egg-laying bat. <laughs> I love that example, by the way. <laughs> and if you are arguing there is such a thing, then you need to just produce that. If you're arguing that there is no such thing, well, you can't definitively show that there is no such thing. But you could look and look and look at every single bat and see, okay, that one doesn't lay out. You could just look at all the occurrences of observation in the world, and it becomes a matter of induction. But what do you think of that the idea that asserting that God exists is making the positive claim? Nathan, you were saying that, no, actually, they're both making a descriptive claim about the universe. One is a universe run by God, originated mm-hmm. by God, lying in God. A, a God. creation, makes, in other words. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And the other is a self-contained universe, and that... Those are sort of of equal complexity. Occam's razor does not tell you to pick one over the other.
2: Right. So the contest between those two kinds of narratives, again, is not a matter of the presence or non-presence of an empirical entity so much as it is an aesthetic contest about which sort of world it is more compelling to live in. This is where, again, there are forces beyond the syllogism that make that kind of determination. So again, you know, I think Flew and Hansen present some very interesting arguments, and I think they're good demonstrations of certain kind of argumentative logic. But ultimately, it doesn't necessarily produce any kind of conviction, simply because, like you were alluding to, God is not an entity among entities, but is creator of being itself. So it's an entirely different kind of order of predicates that apply to God, if that makes any sense. We're
3: just in a culture now where it seems to make more sense to put the burden of proof onto the theist. But the idea that that a universe just either has always just existed and that's it, or spontaneously came into existence without any type of divine character in the narrative, that would have seemed the most unreasonable position which would require you to prove it back in the day. And I think that, you know, when I started off by saying, hey fine, I'll take the ball, give it to me. That's just for me an acknowledgement of like, well, this is where our culture is now. But I don't think you can argue in a timeless philosophical way that automatically the burden of proof is on the theist.
1: I think someone might respond, though, that the reason why we are there culturally is because science explains the things that religion used to be thought, was invented thought to, to explain, to explain <laughs> and explains them in a more satisfying way, which goes to show in some sense that when we talk about what's rational, it's a kind of normative idea. It's an idea of concerning intellectual hygiene or, or what what are the good habits of thinking and believing and so on and so forth. That's an interesting part of this. But I think, yeah, so it's not just that we're willy-nilly here culturally, it's because there are competing explanations to God that have, for many people, eclipsed God as an explanation.
2: Right. And Wes, I'm glad you brought up the notion of the explanatory device because that strikes me as a narrative that stacks the deck about as much as the original sin one does. Mm -hmm. If you tell a story in which human beings in various times and various places invent machinery to explain physical phenomena, you are already telling a story in which God will give way to quarks, right? Just as if you tell the story of the world is created and our gifts, are bodies, the proper response is gratitude, and yet some of these creatures opt to say that there is no God, that's also stacking the deck. I guess in my mind, I can't think of a story that doesn't stack the deck, and, I, and that's why it ends up becoming an aesthetic contest rather than a...
1: I'm not sure, though. So, for instance, I think that the cosmological argument, even though, though it fails as a proof of God, actually shows that God as a theory is well-motivated. Okay. Just because it's not a definitive proof doesn't show that there are actually interesting and good reasons to postulate a god as the cause of the world, let's say. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's not going to be a cause in the typical sense that we think of as a cause. It's not going to be a empirical, spatio-temporal type of cause. And he's not going to be mm-hmm. an entity in the typical way we think of that, as an appearance among appearances. So it's a strange sort of theory. And, yeah, of course speaking from a (laughs) hyper-rational, agnostic or atheist point of view. But it seems to me to be a well-motivated one, even if you accept that challenge. That's the...
2: uh, Right. And I guess I would reply to that, that that would be a good motivation if that's the way we told the story. But most versions of Islam and Judaism and Christianity that I'm aware of tell stories in which... God takes the initiative as an agent to approach humanity, not that humanity posits God as an explanation. And again, to adjudicate between those two stories strikes me as an exercise, not in syllogistic reasoning, but a a contest of storytelling. And
0: so the way Flew puts this is Mm -hmm. uh, what would justify a presumption of atheism or the other way around? And it depends on your ends, and we also saw this, we have a past episode on William James' The Will to Believe. And the way he puts it is, is it more important to you to avoid being wrong? So you should just suspend judgment until you're sure of something? Or is it more important to, you know, he's pro-religion, at least a, some kind of religion, mm-hmm. to live with the benefits that religion gives you? The way Carl Jung puts it, is it easier to live thinking that the house is about to fall down?
1: Or is it... (laughs) There is a first step to that argument. It's the Kantian step, which is to say that we can't evaluate God in scientific terms. And that's where pragmatism sort of comes into play. It's in that position where we don't have good scientific or empirical reasons to say either way whether or not there is a God. That's when the pragmatic concerns operate freely, basically. And then Mm -hmm. we can say, what is it that's most valuable to us? I was reading that into flu that... It's not just that he's saying, like some of the other
0: authors, that if you're going to argue for God, then you need to produce evidence. He's famous with that 1950 paper for being sort of the first new atheist or the the old atheist. I don't know what <laughs> what the appropriate category. But So he doesn't think that evidence is going to be forthcoming. So by saying the ball is in your court, he's trying to finish up the game right there. He's fully aware that that is what he's doing. So he thinks that... Okay, so we can talk about why do we care about the presumption of innocence in a law court? Well, because it's more important for us to not punish innocent people than it is to catch every last possibly guilty person. And he gives the example of, uh, well, what about a totalitarian state where their interest is really just to show their power? And it's much more important for them to come down as hard as possible. They would have the opposite presumption. But the presumption here is that there is a common culture. So he thinks that it's, well, what we're about is gaining knowledge, and we know about gaining knowledge from other things that we do. And if let's imagine a colleague of yours performed a discreditable action. Well, you would demand evidence of that. You wouldn't want to just jump ahead and condemn the person. So he thinks that's just a norm in our culture, that for having knowledge— you need evidence. And so why wouldn't that apply here as well? And it sounds like, Nathan, you're saying by this talk of competing stories
4: mm-hmm. that
0: we don't actually have a common culture. I mean, I know, Nathan, you particular, with your scholarship, are committed to a point of view that is
1: pre-enlightenment, frankly, and sort of see <laughs> that that's— But also, is the believer in God really claiming that they have knowledge of God? That's the sort of step here in this argument, which Kant, for instance, would reject— knowledge already implies the empirical knowledge already implies this scientific domain. You can use quote unquote knowledge about God perhaps, but then you're using it an entirely different way and different kinds of rules apply there.
2: Right. And and here's where my pedigree as a mid nineties postmodernist, I mean, are definitely showing, but yeah, I mean, I would agree that I don't consider common narratives to be something that occur naturally. I think that common narratives are the functions of historical communities and historical traditions, and I think that entering into one of those communities from another is certainly something that involves logical syllogisms, and I would say it's nothing less, but I would also be reticent to say that it's not something more. I think I got all my negatives lined up there.
1: Yeah, I'm a little confused by what you
2: So in other words, I think that one of the things that I see in Flew and Hansen is that they want to treat the question of God simply as this question of evidence without calling into question, okay, well, first of all, what does evidence mean? What does knowledge mean? Like you just said, I keep going back to this sort of phenomenological take on things, but in my own experience, again, just in conversations with folks who either convert to the faith from agnosticism, atheism, or people who become atheists after having been in the faith for some span of time, the logical problems that Flew and Hansen are often involved, but the story is almost always more complex than that.
0: Hansen's article is called The Agnostics Dilemma. Yes, yes. And he's saying, not only kind of making the point that we've already made that, well, if you can't produce God, like, you know, it would just be like producing an oviparous bat. <laughs> Then the default should be that you don't buy it, that that's just the way induction works. But he puts this that it's not just a matter of, well, we haven't located God yet, we haven't located the oviparous bat yet, but the agnostic is actually being inconsistent. The agnostic begins as a fact gatherer, right? Because you consider that, well, it's possible that there could be proof that God exists that situation that Rob described of of the 20-foot Jesus at the foot of your bed. Although I would believe that the 20-foot Jesus would have the power to both be 20 feet tall and yet fit in your small room. That's just (laughs) the way the 20-foot Jesus works. Begins as a fact-gatherer, thinking that it is possible that you could prove such a thing, but then ends as a logician and says, okay, well, the positive case has not been produced. So then we'll switch to being a logician and saying, you can't prove a negative. This is something you hear very common. You can't sure. actually prove atheism just because. How do you prove the absence of something? Couldn't he just be hiding further? Isn't that, in fact, the way that any sophisticated believer in God doesn't think that he's the kind of thing that at least normally would come forward and identify himself this way, even to individuals? So, why would we expect that? I mean, what did you think of this particular move as a charge of inconsistency against the agnostic?
3: Well, for me, I just feel like it keeps coming back to the idea of humility and admitting limits of reason that slamming the agnostic, you know, they're saying that, look, you either have to go with your head or go with your glands in deciding which way you're going to tip between atheist and theist. Say, well, maybe the agnostic has a belief in the possible limits of their perception, their ability to perceive something. Maybe the agnostic has some humility that understands that there are things in this universe that are beyond our perception, our ability to reason out. And I would have loved to have seen that argument played out, knocked down or lifted up, but it felt like there was this assumption that all can be conquered if you just choose the method you're going to utilize.
2: Although, to be fair, his charge is inconsistency, and I mean, in a logical sense, I think he narrates it pretty well. I mean, you know, this is an inconsistent approach to the God question, right? If we're positing an entity called God and you begin by saying, okay, we've got all these instances in which we cannot empirically point to God and any other oviparous bat scenario, we would say they must not exist. But in this particular case, it's sort of a, a, oh, I want to say special pleading, but I'm not sure if that's the name of the fallacy. But it's a case in which a different rule applies to this one particular question.
0: Well, and that was exactly the point of Flew's 1950 essay that you quoted the end of is Mm -hmm. if you admit that I think most people, you guys seem a rare exception, that (laughs) uh, admit that it is possible that we could, through this kind of thing that Hansen describes, all be convinced that God really does exist. You know, if you think that the miracles occurred, if you think that Jesus was appeared to and Jesus did all these miracles, then it does not seem out of the question. Can't we have that too? (laughs) Can't we get shown that as well? At least it's in the realm of possibility and that that would Mm -hmm. be convincing. So therefore, just to be consistent, if you're going to say it could be confirmed by evidence, you also say there's some possible evidence that could disconfirm. So again,
1: I I think this is a... It's an equivocation on this word evidence. So when the agnostic says there's some possible evidence that could confirm, I mean, does the agnostic even grant that? I don't think the agnostic grants that there's some possible evidence that could confirm that God exists.
2: Point taken. I hadn't even thought of that.
1: Especially if what you mean by evidence, which I think Hansen seems to mean, is some empirical sort of evidence. I mean, I think many agnostics wouldn't even concede that revelation, some sort of spiritual revelation would count as evidence. And most of us don't think God is going to appear as an apparition of some some kind. So I don't think the agnostic even concedes that from the beginning.
0: Mm-hmm. So it sounds like flu actually was the kind of agnostic that Hansen talks about. He was known for his atheism, and there's kind of a flurry of controversy about the end of his life when he was like 80 years old <laughs> in 2003 that he told somebody in an interview that you know, I guess I don't really understand how Darwin's – I understand how what evolutionary theory is trying to explain in terms of the particular mechanisms by which species evolve. But to get the whole thing kicked off in the first place, to sort of set up the laws by which evolution proceeds, I'm beginning to think now that you would need a god. You know, so basically <laughs> he converted to deism, not <laughs> to Christianity, wow. but to deism. There must have been a god to at least kick things off.
2: <laughs> right. You know, I know that Khan has kind of become Rob's and my center of gravity in this conversation, but that's why his claim – the statement God exists has no moral implications just resonates with me because, again, the apparition that Hansen describes, I would be among those people that Wes was just talking about saying, OK, that's not God, whatever the heck that was. I think it was a space alien. Hmm. Chariots of the gods. If the gods had chariots, <laughs> especially, you should be very suspicious. Yes, Indeed. <laughs>
0: You know, I've used that same thing, irrelevance of proof to religion, on the atheist side in here that by the time I got to this point of starting this podcast in my philosophical career, that the whole question of is there a God just seemed kind of boring to me. This is a very existentialist point, which Khan makes in here that it's the point that flows out of Hume's is-ought distinction that even if there was a God telling you what to do— That doesn't make – and we had a whole podcast on this about Plato's euthyphro, so I'm not going to try to explain the whole thing right now. But that in itself would not establish that that's what goodness is. In other words, there's a disconnect between what anybody says, (laughs) even a god, even an all-powerful god, and what the good is. And Mm -hmm. so the way Khan puts it is it's not that the moral aspect is logically prior to the metaphysical aspect, but at least they go hand in hand, that you buy into – a moral enterprise, you know, you realize that there are things wrong and <laughs> there's a project by which we should tell people the right way to be. And as Rob referred to, you latch on to a tradition as a way of doing this. And that sort of then all becomes part and parcel of buying into a religion. It's a, like Nathan was saying, but seeing yourself as part of a narrative here.
2: Right. And, and to follow up on that, that's honestly why His assertion that God exists has no moral implications resonated with me because a narrative that emerges out of a sacred tradition is going to be so much more complex than God exists, right? I mean, for me to be a righteous Muslim is going to involve me in such a wildly different story from the one that makes me a justice-seeking liberal Protestant that what you're talking about there, in both cases, you can use the English noun God to describe what's going on, but because they are involved in such wildly different stories, you really do need to get into the details to understand what in the world it would mean for someone to be faithful to God.
0: We definitely got some criticism on the Arguments for the essence of God episode is, why wouldn't you just start by defining God or something? <laughs> I, I always see that as it's kind of problematic because of the various traditions that you're talking about. But yet come on. We all know what the common thing, what people are talking about. (laughs) It only slows you down if you insisted before doing anything else. Well, first, let's come up with the definition of God. The podcast would be done before you got to the second step of actually talking about the cosmological argument or something.
1: I mean, it depends on how robust you want the definition to be, right? It could be an Aristotelian about it and just Mm -hmm. posit God as this unmoved mover or the creator of the universe, let's say.
0: Yeah, sure.
1: And that's sort of the most bare bones conceptual space for God to fill. And then you could elaborate on that to your heart's content or not. And that seems to be what's at stake in at least that minimal definition. You know, nobody's arguing for
0: a Spinozic God or a Ralph Walso Emerson God in these kind of debates. It's that those weird, in my mind, more reasonable, (laughs) <laughs> conceptions need to be treated differently. Right, that, you right. know, they go along with the pragmatic faith that uh, Swinburne talks about if, of, oh, I can pursue religion and not even make positive factual claims about a God. Like, no, no, most of the time, at least in popular culture, when we're talking about the existence of God, it's kind of what you're saying, Wes.
3: Well, I think also that for the person who's the believer to try to separate the existence of God from whatever the will of such a God is seems nonsensical because it's just very hard to pull apart this idea of whether or not there is a God from what is it that this God wills. Those things get so intertwined. I just think that that becomes problematic when you try to just argue the existence of God separate from any statements about such God. I thought mm. that in the episode that y'all did, the Will to Believe episode, that I really enjoyed some of the back and forth that you had about that and about trying to imagine what is this will of such a God that might exist. And in fact, I loved it so much that today in my sermon, Mark, I quoted you from that episode. Um,
2: so <laughs> It's a first. yeah. So just so I you, hope. Yeah. Well,
3: you never know. And you said something on the lines of, If there is an omnipresent, omniscient God, I highly doubt that he is preoccupied with whether or not I believe in him, that I imagine that he has bigger things to deal with. And I just found that fascinating, coming from my own perspective, this idea that, because those kinds of concepts get so intertwined when you come from my little narrative, to borrow Nathan's way of talking about it. Well, Alistair uh,
2: McIntyre's before me, I assure you. Yeah. <laughs> so did you spend
0: the rest of the sermon ripping that down? What was the response there?
3: Yeah, I said like, can you believe that load of
0: bull?
1: Um,
3: no. <laughs>
0: hey, oh. we've got the explicit tag on this podcast already. Yeah.
3: Please take advantage of oh, it. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. So. <laughs> did um, you
1: burn a copy of the podcast?
3: <laughs> <laughs> we did. We threw it out there. Like, yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah we brought forth a shrubbery and and it was all good. Actually, what we talked about was that no god doesn 't need you to believe in him, but you need to believe in him, and the people around you need you to believe in him that that walk of faith is a community event, and that our ability to express whatever faith we have in whatever amounts or strengths is imperative to our story together. But no, the Lord God Almighty does not lose sleep over whether or not Mark believes in him. But the rest of us would be better Mm. off if Mark did. And Mark would be too in my little world.
2: (laughs) What Rob just narrated shows why the particular character of the God is so important because if indeed God is the Logos and the Logos became flesh, then it makes sense to say that whatever this omnipresent, omniscient God is, is also a human body and therefore would experience a certain sort of sympathy towards Mark Linsenmayer and therefore would be concerned that Mark Linsenmayer lives a certain kind of human life that is intelligibly good, right? Now, whether that means that Mark comes to my church or he burns in hell, I don't think that's (laughs) the point at all. I, I don't think that's the case, by the way. Thank, but thank God. on the other hand, you know, if you're in the Mary surah of the Quran, and, you know, well, what is Allah? Well, whatever it is, it's not human body. OK, definitely not human body. Can't have a human body. Then in that case, those sorts of concerns are going to take on a very different cast ethically. I know I keep beating this drum, but, you know, when a lot of these writers, not all of them, posit this, what I think of as sort of a plain vanilla God concept, It just strikes me as so foreign to the life of Islam or the life of Judaism or the life of Catholicism or the life of evangelical Protestantism, like me, that I regarded all of these arguments sort of at arm's distance. They never really got into my head the way that, for instance, Friedrich Nietzsche does when he really digs into the writings of Tertullian or Aquinas or something like that and says, okay... This is your intellectual tradition. What do you think about the implications of it?
1: One approach to all of this is just to say, look, it just doesn't matter to me whether belief in God is rational. I think that's uh, fideism.
2: I guess I have become so postmodern, which is to say insufferable enough, that (laughs) a whole lot of the intellectual world looks like fideism to me, even where it doesn't look like it to other folks
0: so fideism was like evidentialism seemingly a word that does not need to exist it's like <laughs> evidentialism is just belief in evidence and fideism fide fide mm-hmm. fideism is a you know belief in faith
1: <laughs> right no, no. <laughs> fideism means that belief in god isn't really it doesn't matter whether it's rational or not right so it's advocacy of faith that's <laughs> it's important that faith not be in conflict with the reason right so for some people that's actually important and that's We sort of Mm -hmm. presume the importance of that in this podcast. But for some people, it's, you know, including presumably Kierkegaard, for instance, it's just not important at all whether faith and reason are in conflict. You choose faith anyway.
0: Was it Tertullian, Nathan, that says, I believe it because it's irrational,
3: because it's... Yes, that is Tertullian. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I hope he said it with that accent, too, because that was quite... (laughs) quite awesome.
0: I just, I think I wrongly attributed that to Augustine in some past podcast, and I feel ashamed of myself
2: Oh, really? Yeah, 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 that's definitely Tertullian. (laughs) And I guess, again, you know, the strong distinction between faith and reason, like I said, first of all, strikes me as, as stacking the deck right from the outset, simply because, I mean, I see a lot of what goes on in systematic theology, for instance, as very rational. You know, it has syllogistic connections between its elements. It relies on a certain kind of logical coherence in order to work. So yeah, I mean, I don't know that I would say that rationality is unimportant. I would want to think a little bit longer about what range of things counts as rationality.
0: Why, that sounds like you're bringing us to Basil Mitchell's Faith and Criticism from (laughs) 1994. Well... Which uh, both he and Van Inwagen, Mm -hmm. who is uh, a couple articles later... Rip on this guy, W.K. Clifford, and his principle, it is wrong always, everywhere, and for everyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence.
3: Yeah, Clifford's getting a beat down in these later uh, articles.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked a lot about, about that, and you know, one of the responses, which Van Inwagen also goes, is that they're sort of individual, things that can strike an individual. Basil Mitchell, basically, his whole article is quoting John Henry Newman, which I guess... Nathan, I've heard that name mentioned on your podcast. Is he one of your central figures? hmm I mean, the name is familiar, but I was not—he's never been on our list of potential people to read. But apparently he was known for—he's uh, 1800-something mm-hmm. for criticizing Locke. The way he puts it in here is, uh, you know, Locke the empiricist. Newman says that Locke consults his own ideal of how the mind ought to act instead of investigating human nature as it is actually found in the world.
2: Right. So, I mean, in that way, I think Newman is a proto-Wittgensteinian because he's interested in saying, okay, how is it when we think that we actually think? What is it that counts as this matching that? What is it that counts as evidence in this particular narrative? What is it that counts as evidence in that particular narrative? But to summarize Mitchell a little bit, really his central question is, does anyone actually think that way? Do we go around in our human interactions with the world whether that be with our neighbors or with the natural world or for those who believe with various faces of God thinking okay you know you my child I'm waiting for the evidence to come along that you're not in fact my child that's not really the way that human nature works and that's where he quotes Newman criticizing Locke that we ought to take a look at the way that human thought processes actually happen and what Mitchell focuses on and this is over in uh, page 365, is that the great criticism of theological thinking is its tenacity. So in other words, when someone produces evidence against the existence of God, believers tend to be tenacious in their belief of in God and try to basically do an end run around the apparent lack of evidence or the apparent evidence to the contrary Right, the problem of evil, yep. Yeah, to create an alternative theory that accounts for the new phenomenon, but still keeps the core of what they believe. And what Mitchell wants to propose, I think, and this is over on uh, 366, is that when you look at the actual operations of normal science, and did you all do a Thomas Kuhn episode? We did. We did. Oh, good, yep. good, good, all right. So if you're if you're looking at the operations, away. <laughs> <laughs> if you're looking at the operations of normal science the way that We actually encounter anomalous phenomena when we observe material happenings. What we tend to do is not to say that, therefore, physics is bunk, but we say, how can we account for it using the physical categories that we have? And then you get into what Kuhn calls the possibility of a scientific revolution and a supplanting of one paradigm with another, which it is something that certainly involves logic, but it also involves sociological realities, historical realities, psychological realities, all kinds of good stuff beyond simple observation and pattern recognition and theory generation. So Mitchell wants to ask if scientists are allowed to be tenacious about atomic theory, couldn't Christians be tenacious about the Trinity?
1: Good summary. It comes back to this idea that... It's not so much even in science that you have this data and then you inductively leap from data to conclusion. You come up with a sort of creative theory which explains some data and then you put it to the test. You try to mm-hmm. disconfirm it or you see if it has predictive power. You see if new phenomena can be explained by the same theory. But as Kuhn points out and as Mitchell's is bringing up, in many cases, even if you find a contradiction, you don't immediately abandon the theory. You try to find some way to explain things that preserves the theory so if you think of god as a theory you can see the force of that which is that well god has such and such explanatory value and ultimately such and such pragmatic value and you can't provide me with any direct disconfirming evidence Mm -hmm. even in the case of hard problems like the problem of evil we can have a discussion about that we can do theodicy we can justify the ways of god to humanity and so on and so forth so Yeah, it's an interesting
2: parallel. The other thing that appeals to me about Mitchell here is that he allows for revolutions within a community of inquiry, not to be the simple abandonment of a thing, but the radical reformation or revision of the thing. So within physics, when we discover that the atom is not in fact indivisible, we don't abandon the atom as a concept, but rather we reconceptualize it as nucleus plus valence shell. And I think that that is appealing for me because that tells the story of a lot of the revolutions that do occur within Christian communities. It's not necessarily that they instantly go atheist, but their conceptions of God transform based on new experiences, new observations, new arguments, so on and so forth. And and Rob, I mean, you know, you're our liberal Protestant here. I mean, you all are Kung Fu masters at this.
0: <laughs> yes. Did your congregation slip into Spinozism in the <laughs>
2: last years? <or> so?
3: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. We're just regular revolutionaries there. What I really appreciated about Mitchell was this not trying to draw a line between faith and reason, but to say that both are subject to the same type of biases. And let's just own the way that we approach issues and understandings. For example, in my former career, uh, one of the things I did was I helped design radios for the Army. And, you, you know, the different software teams and hardware teams that worked on the radio, you know, when there was some behavior that occurred and we needed to explain it, everybody walked into the room with their bias. Usually it was that you figured, well, my stuff's working perfect, it's your stuff that's broken. And so the hardware guys would say, well, it's obviously the signal processor that's off. And then the, they would say, well, I think the ASIC is off. And we go back and forth like that. And I think that. It's just ridiculous to have this idea that anybody walks into an exercise of philosophy or theology or really any human endeavor without this burden of bias and of cumulative experiences that build up that bias. And then finally, that last part, which I I love the way it was phrased, the principle of tenacity, which is not just a, a stubbornness to be willing to be moved, but it's a necessary grounding. It's a necessary inertia. Otherwise, we would just be all over the place and we couldn't settle on any such thoughts because we'd be subject to every little bit of evidence that seems a bit off. So yeah, I, I just really appreciated this article in particular for that, that air of uh, humility, which is kind of my shtick for the evening, it seems.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the accumulation of probabilities. So he has a nice list Mitchell does A through D (laughs) of sort of what rationality amounts to. And he says, much reasoning is tacit and informal. It is the accumulation of probabilities arising out of the nature and circumstances of the particular case under review. So really, you have to talk about, again, not rationality in the abstract. What would an alien (laughs) coming to Earth, (laughs) somebody completely free of any sort of bias, conclude? Because there is no such thing. The way, is it Plantinga? Is that how to pronounce his name? Oh,
2: goodness. Man- it is tonight. What do you think? Yeah, there you go.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the way. He also talks about this as a bottom-up case, not a top-down, that you have individual experiences, which the way he characterizes them, Plantiga characterizes them as, well, I gave one, that is: you contemplate the starry heavens and you, you think of the vastness, and this makes you naturally think of, wow, how vast must be the being who created this, or something like that. It, it makes you think of the vastness. It makes you... Of course, that's not going to be an intuition that somebody like Dawkins shares. I think Dawkins has a whole book on how amazing and awesome nature is and how you can, as an atheist, admit that. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, But planting is, well, you start where you are. I mean, this is what the hermeneutic circle is about. If that's the tradition that you're in, if that's the point of view you're coming at things from, if these uh, ultimate conclusions you come are built out of by something like induction of individual experiences, individual decisions, then you have to look at your actual reactions. You have to do phenomenology, not pay attention to what somebody else is telling you. Their interpretations of these things are. I mean, those can be, of course, useful. I would hope <laughs> to talk with other people and, like, what do you think of the night sky? Well, I, 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 how do you interpret that? Which seemed to be something. To me, that was missing maybe from Plantinga's case. But in any case, Mitchell seems to think that you can build up to something like the paradigm that you then hold to with the principle of tenacity by these cumulative experiences.
3: Yeah, and I saw a uh, video on YouTube, an interview with Plantinga, and he gave this one argument saying that, well, without evidence of me having some type of malfunction, if I go through life and as evidence of the world comes at me, I continue to hold on to this belief, then it's reasonable because I don't see a, a, a malfunction in myself and others do not observe that in me either. So if I hold on to this belief through all these experiences, then that makes it reasonable. And I'm not so sure how much I really want to jump on the plantinga train and ride that for a while, but I thought that was a kind of an interesting way to phrase it. Just to give another shout-out back to that Will to Believe episode that you had, there was another exchange that you all had where at some point you're having an argument over why is it that I believe that when I put my pencil down on the table that it's going to stay there and not float up into the air? And the argument that you all were having back and forth was that, is it that I have a belief in the law of gravity? No, it's the cumulative set of experiences that I have had that teaches me to expect that when I put the pencil down on the table, it will not float up into the air. It will stay on the table. I do not think to myself, ah, thank goodness for gravity, You know, for the bending of the space-time continuum by the mass of the planet. For now, the pencil will stay on the table. Thus, I believe, here I go, yeah.
0: That would be a top-down
3: approach. Yes, Yes. but instead, it's very much just like, well, since I've been a kid, every time I put pencils down, they stay down. And if on a given day you were to put down a pencil and it would suddenly start to float upwards, well, okay, now I need to notice that. I need to deal with that. But a lifetime of cumulative experiences sets you up to believe certain things, expect certain things, interpret what happens that's, you know, you ask a small child about when you're on one of those carnival rides, it spins very fast and they try to throw out an item and it comes back against the wall that's spinning. I don't know if you've ever been on one of those before, but a child will say, oh, that's gravity. If they have that knowledge or they'll say like, oh, that's like dropping thing. And it's like, no, it's kind of different, but you're trying to just explain it from what you've seen and experienced and know to be true. It's kind of accumulated.
0: Well, what'd you think? I mean, I'll buy the examples that he compares religious belief to. Going back to if you really took Clifford seriously about you need to have evidence and you need to only believe in proportion to the evidence that's presented to you, then for instance, how would you know for certain that other minds exist or that somebody is in pain? And the way Plantinga says, you know, it's that instead of it being a problem like Descartes might think or somebody engaging in a Cartesian project of doubt might think that don't we think that it's just one of the the way Plantinga puts it is that. Seeing someone in pain naturally gives rise the belief to me that there is a person in pain there. I mean, really, what am I experiencing? I'm not experiencing someone in pain, strictly speaking, if you're just being empirical. I'm experiencing an appearance of somebody writhing around. You know, I'm witnessing some visual thing. But he says it's a mistake to say that you infer from that that someone is in pain. No, it really is a better description of the experience, a better phenomenological description to say, one of the basic things that I'm experiencing, it's
1: someone in pain. Well, I think the important idea here is that we have these beliefs that he calls properly basic, which, yes. which mm-hmm. means that they are not derived from other beliefs. They're not justified in terms of other beliefs that we have. So for instance, seeing a tree, calling to mind a memory, right? what's the evidence that I really went to the store yesterday? You know, I have it as a memory, but there's no evidence in terms of, you know, I can't rationally justify it in terms of other beliefs. So those sorts of things are basic. And that includes this experience of other people as having minds or being in pain. And he's going to want to include this experience of, or this belief in God as among those sorts of beliefs.
0: Well, but specifically, it's not directly the belief in God. That would be like the belief in gravity that Rob was talking about. It's these individual instances of the vastness of the universe or how pretty the flower is. And so experiencing it as, just like you experiencing seeing someone writhing around is, now I'm experiencing that person in pain. Planting wants to make the comparison that when I see a beautiful flower, I can, at least he does, coming out with his biases, sees it as an immediate evidence of the goodness of God, the well-designedness of nature. And from there, okay, so maybe God exists is not itself properly basic, but it's one little step. It's just a generalization from all these individual things
3: that then, again, build up over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the cumulative aspect of it, too, came up again in the Alston article in trying to deal with mystical experiences that happen in people's lives and and saying that part of the tradition, the background theology or aspects of your tradition, or say the background of your own atheism, informs how you interpret these added experiences that come into play. And so, you know, we have to constantly rely on other sources in order to interpret what's coming in, in terms of our experiences as they come into our lives. So, I think that in a number of these articles, I like better when Alston took an approach at it and just said, look, that you're going to be biased by the tradition or background that you're exposed to. And I think that that's definitely something that as a practicing clergy, as we encounter more and more people who don't walk through our doors with a grounded, specific narrative of faith or tradition— it becomes harder and harder sometimes for us to communicate what it is that we believe because a lot of the folks who have spent most of their lives engaged in a community of Christian faith take for granted this background that is at work, that is coloring our experiences And I'm willing to admit biasing what we take in and what we interpret. So I just feel like that's part of what makes it so difficult to consider these different proofs or arguments without just owning up to these biases that keep coming up in several of these articles.
2: Right. And to summarize Alston real quick, I mean, his central claim seems to be that mystical experiences always occur in some sort of symbolic narrative matrix. So in other words, the apparition of some sort of entity to a Muslim is not going to be interpreted as the divine Logos, the son of God, because that is a category that is anathema within Islam. Whereas an apparition to a Hindu is a lot more likely to be Krishna than it is to be Jesus and so on and so forth. So it's not just what Rob said, but what Rob said is right, that it biases us, but it actually provides the context inside of which a mystical experience can actually be intelligible in the first place. It's the conditions within which we can actually tell the story of a mystical experience
0: Well, that's what hermeneutics is all about. We we covered Gautamer within the last year. Mm -hmm. So hermeneutics is about to understand something new. You have to have some tools. It's not bias always sounds negative. Yeah. Like you want to get rid of bias. You want to be objective. But no, if we didn't have these things from beforehand, we could not make intelligible the new experiences. I think some later episode, we're eventually going to get to reading William James' variety of religious experience, and we'll talk about mysticism more, so I don't want to spend too much time on it now, but I I do like the point in the Olsen article that you could just call it another kind of experience, another kind of thing that, just like these things that Plantinga is bringing up, that if you just had one in isolation, it might not make, I was going to say it might not be a conversion experience, but maybe it would be that you finally get out from the city... So you could actually see the sky, whereas you could not make it out before and you encounter the vastness and you're overwhelmed and you have a religious conversion right then and there. It is possible that this kind of thing could happen. But the normal criticism of people who have what near death experiences or claim mystical experiences is, wow, isn't that a coincidence that you happen to see the God that you were expecting to see? And that somebody who's raised in a Hindu culture sees the god they're expecting to see. Isn't that, you know, so that's a way of trying to undermine all mystical experiences. That obviously what was going on there is just some freak biological thing. And you interpreted it according to your preconceived notions. Mm -hmm. And Olsen's actually saying, yeah, that's the way knowledge works. That's not a reason to dismiss it. It just means that, right, in isolation, a mystical experience by itself would not be enough to found a religion all the way. We've heard several echoes of that in this conversation with the Jesus at the foot of the bed and such that you know, if you didn't already have not necessarily even just training or culture but some other experiences that would support this. I don't know. I I find it difficult to buy certainly Plantinga's point that having these religion infused experiences. So, wait, I every day I go out and I look at a flower and I see there's God. There's God. There's God. There's God. And so
1: so where where in Plantinga is this?
0: More examples on page 351. 351, yep. These propositions are properly basic in the right circumstances. The flower is created by God. The vast and intricate universe was created by God. We contemplate the flower or behold the starry heavens. He talks about whenever I feel bad about something. I don't know. Nathan, do you have the quote there about experiences of regret or experiences of
2: other. Upon reading the Bible, one may be impressed with a deep sense that God is speaking to him. Upon having done what I know is cheap or wrong. I love that phrase. Or wicked. I may feel guilty in God's sight and form the belief God disapproves of what I've done upon confession and repentance. I may feel forgiven, forming the belief God forgives me for what I've done. A person in grave danger may turn to God, asking for His protection and help. And of course, he or she then forms the belief that God is indeed able to hear and help if He sees fit. When life is sweet and satisfying, a spontaneous sense of gratitude may well up within the soul. Someone in this condition may thank and praise the Lord for His goodness. And will, of course, form the accompanying belief that indeed the Lord is to be thanked and praised. And I I agree completely with Mark here. I mean, if you don't have a prior matrix of, I'm going to call it Christian theology, even though it's a little bit imprecise. Hmm. But if you don't have that system of symbols and narratives and convictions that we call Christianity, then you're not going to have those experiences and thank God for them. At least I don't think so. Rob?
3: No, I'd I'd say that's true. And I think that some recent writing about understanding what's going on with faith in our common culture speaks to this. uh, uh, Diana Butler Bass has a book, Christianity After Religion, in which Mm -hmm. she talks specifically about how it's interesting the way we so often in the past have talked about that people's approach to faith is that, well, first you figure out what you believe. Then you start behaving according to those beliefs. And then, after you do that a while amongst a community of faith in a church or setting or whatever, you'll finally feel like you belong to this movement or to this particular church. And uh, I should point out that, like, when you get down to it and you actually talk to human beings and ask them how it really works for them, you find out it's in exactly the opposite order. That we often first feel a sense of belonging, and then we start behaving along with these folks, and then beliefs are created, which I think very much is exactly the situation of the context is set, the experiences are there, you're within a narrative, and then beliefs are formulated. And I think that happens not just in faith communities, I think that happens in other circumstances as well.
1: Why is belief in the great pumpkin not properly basic as well then?
3: Ah, well, (laughs) I think that we have a great answer for that that's given to us right there in our wonderful Plantinga, who says at the bottom of page 354... Thus, for example, the Reform epistemologist may concur with Calvin in holding that God has implanted in us a natural tendency to see his hand in the world around us. The same cannot be said for the great pumpkin, my friend, Wes, there being no great pumpkin and no natural tendency to accept beliefs about the great pumpkin. So there's some notion here that there has not in the experience of humankind been an implanting of a tendency to believe in the great pumpkin.
1: Yeah, before that, he's talking about how there really is no cut and dried criterion for what's properly basic, right?
0: It sounds like it's phenomenological. It's the fact that people like me, Alvin Plantinga, are reporting that this kind of stuff seems properly basic to me. And it's just that we don't actually have – if we had examples of a lot of people standing up and saying, well, great pumpkinism actually does – seem natural to me, then you would start to pay attention to them. But the fact that we don't have that means we can dismiss it.
3: Yeah, and I will say that, like, in my own experience of faith, is that the longevity of these ideas, their ability to withstand the rise and fall of cultures and have influence over such a long period of time, gives it weight for me. So not just that today I don't look around and see great pumpkinism running wild. (laughs) It's that over centuries, great pumpkinism has not been able to get any traction. But the very traction that Christianity has had, that moves me. And I think that moves a lot of believers, not simply just that grandma and grandpa believed it, because that doesn't work so well, especially now,
1: I think the fact that pumpkins are edible is also kind of a drawback. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> well, if you, but we, have,
3: we have communion, though,
1: so. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that delicious uh, chocolate cheese. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> God's edible, too. I forgot about that. Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's why Plantinga's argument isn't compelling for me, and also why I'm glad there are liberal Protestants like Rob Dyer in the world, is because liberal Protestants tend to be a lot better than evangelicals like me at saying that just because something's been around for a butt-long time doesn't mean that it's good. (laughs) And, you know, fact of the matter is, I mean, you know, churches like Rob's have been a lot more ready than churches like mine, for instance, to welcome women into all aspects of the life of the community. And that's one of those things that certainly we can have theological disputes about that, but just in terms of the discussion we were just having, if longevity of a concept is a high-priority criterion for its goodness, there's a whole lot of stuff that I would call bad that would end up being good.
3: Yes, and I think, though, what you recognize is that it takes time and it takes a preponderance of evidence to move things in other directions. I would totally agree that longevity is something that... It gives me pause and I think it should give the thoughtful person pause, much in line with that principle of tenacity, that it gives you pause before jumping to something new and it makes you look at it a bit more carefully and thanks be to God that we don't just get stuck on the items that we've had for a long period of time, that we we are open to things being changed, our understandings being changed, the idea of things that evolve. But I have to say that the overall principle, I mean, just the very basic nature of the idea of a belief in God, which that goes much farther back than any kind of organized religion that decided rules on what type of bits and pieces you had to have in order to be a pastor. Mm -hmm.
0: I recall, Nathan, you saying on your podcast early on, I think you you had an episode on epistemology and said that... For people in a religious community, it's necessary at least to study enough epistemology because it is so often used as a weapon against religious belief. So this Clifford's Principle is a great example that you had summed up really all of analytic philosophy as being positivist, which is gross oversimplification.
2: It is, it it is. is. And Mark, I I told you I'm not that careful.
0: (laughs) But the idea that you come up with a method and you say, this is the only way that knowledge could be legitimate— Then you apply that to religious belief and you say, well, look, that doesn't work. So therefore we rule out, you know, so that goes back to Hume, you know, it goes back to
2: Locke. It goes, well, Locke wouldn't have admitted it. Hume at least was was straight up
0: (laughs) that this was what he was trying to do.
2: Hume was more honest about it.
0: And just because we get rid of one of these things, we say, hey, Clifford's principle, if you tried to apply it across the board, it would show that actually most of our beliefs are not justified. So therefore, it cannot work. Well, still, the fact that we don't, so the the atheist might say, well, okay, so you give me your epistemological principle to put it in its place. Maybe Mm. maybe Plantinga says this. And uh, the response by whichever author this is, is, no, we don't need that. Just the fact that we don't have a theory doesn't mean we can't know stuff. That we've been knowing things for hundreds of thousands of years without having Uh a theory— you know, and we still are able to look at different beliefs and say, you know, this is more or less justified. We can rule out Greek pumpkinism. We can rule out all sorts of things without having to overintellectualize it.
3: It's von and wagon that says this at the end of his article. Oh yeah, okay. it says this double standard consists in setting religious belief a test it could not possibly pass, and in studiously ignoring the fact that almost none of our beliefs on any subject could possibly pass this test. And it's this Clifford principle.
0: I knew I knew that part was from Van Inwagen, but is he the one that says, and we don't need a method to replace it?
2: We don't need a a principle to replace it. Does this sound familiar, Wes? Uh, no. Okay, 364. Let's try this in Mitchell. Letter D towards the bottom of the page. What we have said so far following Newman about the ways in which people actually think about what constitutes rationality in ordinary life leads naturally to a fourth consideration which bears more closely on the relevance of faith. If our appreciation of evidence and our assessment of the conclusions that follow from it is generally tacit and implicit, and if the process of reasoning is conducted within a framework of assumptions, which are to some extent influenced by the individual's entire character and personality, a certain stability over time in these assumptions is necessary.
0: That's a good point. I'm glad you threw in there. It is not the same point that I was trying to make. But it's not
1: the one you're looking for. That's (laughs) the one that leading up to his sort of comparison to normal science and Kuhn.
0: Okay, well, I tried. Well, I think we've gotten most of the bits of these many articles out here. Are there any important points that you guys recall that we haven't talked about yet?
3: I think Swinburne and this factor of the acting as if, mm-hmm. as a portion of faith, yeah. and this pragmatist faith.
0: So this was a peculiar article. Swinburne actually wrote two articles that we read here, two pieces of things. Swinburne is actually somebody I referred to that I read some of. I read some of this. uh, The existence of God, I think, is the name of the book, and is a very cheery and fun writer. But I found his selections in here to sort of be surprisingly the least useful (laughs) among the ones we read. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That the first, the world and its order, is a straight up just argument that yeah, we can accept that evidence is necessary to prove that God exists, and there's plenty of evidence, (laughs) and Mm -hmm. you know, pretty much giving you the the teleological argument, the argument from design. (laughs) I feel like we already dealt with that kind of stuff enough in the Arguments for the Existence of God episode. But then this this second one, The Voluntariness of Faith from 1981, is the one that Rob just brought up. And it was a little strange to me. Like, it's a little snippet of something. So I wasn't completely clear what he was talking about. But he certainly—he starts that by talking about the different kinds of faith. And, you know, is it possible to have a pragmatist faith— Well, so go on, Rob. Describe what the point was.
3: Well, yeah, just to say that, you know, we often think of it that faith is made up of belief that and trust. So Mm -hmm. it's a matter of what you believe, and then you bridge the gaps, perhaps, with trust. And he introduces this idea of a third view of faith. It's about acting as if something is true, and that's what matters. And I guess at the bottom of the first page of that article, he got into something that, as I read it, I thought, I have seen this in the leadership of a congregation. He says here, he says, Hence we may act on the assumption that there is a God, for unless there is... That which is most worthwhile cannot be had. He will do the same things as the man with Lutheran faith will do. He will, for example, worship and pray and live a good life, partly in the hope to find a better life in the world to come. He prays for his brethren, not necessarily because he believes that there is a God who hears his prayers, but because only if there is can the world be set to right. He lives the good life, not necessarily because he believes that God will reward him, but because only if there is a God who will reward him can he find the deep long-term well-being for which he seeks. He worships not necessarily because he believes that there is a God who deserves worship, but because it is very important to express gratitude for existence if there is a God to whom to be grateful and there is some chance that there is. I felt like that's more real. That is a place where people are, and that's a place where so much of acting as if something is true formulates how true it is for you. And that's where I found it fascinating that he seemed to be presenting this idea that the actions, they kind of like complete the picture
1: or that actions can be a form of faith, so for instance, the way he defines it, so on the pragmatist view, a man s has faith, if he acts on the assumption that there is a God who has the properties which Christians ascribe to him and has provided for man the means of salvation and so on and so forth. so it's not that he has to actually have the belief cognitively if he behaves as if it's true, then that's a sort of faith which is a really interesting way of defining faith
3: we've struggled with this aspect of faith in our Christian tradition, and in particular in the Bible, there's this book, The Book of James, where this very issue comes up, and this is one that that's bothered a lot of us Reformed folks, in caused us problems in Bible studies and <laughs> discussions on this. Where in James chapter two, verses fourteen through twenty six, is this little argument that basically sums up by saying, "So faith without works is also dead." But the kicker in this argument, which I think we don't talk about much, is what it says in the twenty second verse of that Bible passage, which says, "You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith." Was brought to completion by the works. So there's this notion that faith needs works to complete it, and it's actually part of faith. And I think that that's something that is underemphasized. In the faith, we get so caught up on whether or not those works are going to save us or what that means for the judgment of God and all that. But just to understand that basic nature of a human being that says that the actions have to somehow get involved if we're going to complete a belief or a faith. I think that's a really key and and fascinating concept. So I did appreciate that, at least out of that article of Swinburne.
2: Mm -hmm. It really has some neat resonances for Christian ethics, too. Just to pick a question that's definitely on the news and on people's minds as we're recording this here in late November, going with Swinburne's argument here, if someone were to welcome Syrian refugees into their town, into their homes, into their lives, they could do so as if God were going to protect them from any kind of harm. And honestly, this is the tack that a lot of folks in my circles have used to talk about the question of bringing in refugees from any sort of dangerous environment is that the character of faith, like Rob was just saying, is to live as if God is going to protect you, even if, if you're honest, in your gut you really aren't quite sure, but to act as if God would protect you and to do what is right, irrespective of the anxieties and the fears that might keep you from doing what is good and right, that is the content of faith according to that tradition within Christian ethics. So that goes to, you know, questions of war and peace. It goes to questions of generosity and scarcity. A lot of, like I said, theological ethics more generally, kind of runs with this distinction between acting as if and acting according to what you can see that Swinburne lays down here.
0: I thought it was funny that so Paul Helm, the editor of our volume, <laughs> feels the need to descend from the literary heavens in the only place in this chapter and publish. You know, every other essay in here is something that was published elsewhere before and was a big deal, but he feels the need to descend just to say, yeah, Swinburne, that's a little messed up. We were just talking about there. <laughs> uh, and, and specifically, he's getting at the point, which frankly didn't come in through very clear in the Swinburne selection that we, right, we read, true. but that it's As Swinburne was saying, pragmatist faith is actually kind of the best kind of faith because it's voluntary and you can control your actions. And just like the Tertullian thing, it's not that faith is inflicted upon you by evidence. It's that you consciously make a leap. And that's actually what is so impressive about it. Yeah. Yes. And so Paul Helm says, well, the problem with that, Swinburne, is you're saying you just gave us a book, The Existence of God, that has all these arguments that are supposed to take atheists or the doubting or whatever and convince them. And if they are successfully convinced, they no longer have the opportunity to choose faith because it's been that reason has inflicted it upon them. So you can't make it an extra virtuous thing to have faith that's based on no reasons and then at the same time, try to give people reasons to believe.
3: Make up your mind.
1: Right. The more you convince them of God's existence, the less virtuous
3: their faith becomes. Right. Oh, how very disappointing. Like that was like, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm grooving along in these readings and I'm like, man, this is great. This is a great experience. You know, it's, I'm engaging in these different ways. And then I read this Helm one. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's silly. It's just silly. I don't know. Is that bad for Wait, me? What's, to- what's silly? This whole concept that, like, if your belief gets too good, then it's, like, devalued, you know? If it gets too strong. But he was saying that was Swinburne's position, yeah, and he was criticizing it. Yeah, so but yeah. I just—I didn't see it in
0: Swinburne, in what we read. Yeah, yeah. So it was a little peculiar yeah. that we were getting yeah, that there. I, I, I but, think
2: Douglas Adams did this work better with the uh, Babblefish episode in uh, the Hitchhiker <laughs> novels, you know, because the babble fish exists, there must have been a god who intentionally gave it to us. But to believe in god is a matter of faith, not of logic, and therefore god disappears. <laughs> it seems like, I mean, that's basically the work that Helm was trying to do there.
3: Mm, it just, yeah, I just thought the way he tried to capture that just sounded, came off sounding silly. So, yeah, I guess if we want to give Swinburne the credit for the silliness, then fine. But I was like, oh, let's move on to the next article. <laughs> yeah.
0: I do think it's interesting, the whole idea of, which was not touched elsewhere in these readings, of, is faith voluntary? Is belief—actually, Plantinga touches on this, I think, just to reject it. But the idea that—I forget the way that he put it—was pretty much that you can't control what beliefs are properly basic to Mm -hmm. you. And so saying, the way Nietzsche puts this, that we often quote on this podcast, is, Come on, have an intellectual conscience. So having a normative account of reasonableness, which is sort of the premise for this whole discussion, is being religious reasonable? Well, that means you're looking to a norm of what counts as reasonable. And if you're not doing that, come on, get it together, (laughs) change your mind. But according to Plantinga here, no, we can't actually control that. We find reasonable what we find reasonable. We find epistemologically basic what we happen to find that and coming along and scolding me for believing in God, or it seems like this would apply equally well to not believing in God is just a little beside the point. You can't control what you believe. I and mean, what, what did you guys think of that? Because that flies right in the face of what Swinburne is saying here that, or, you know, it's not even who cares about what Swinburne specifically believes, but just the very common thing that, of course, belief is a matter of a conscious leap, or at least to make it Aristotelian, okay, maybe you can't just decide to believe right now or decide to not believe, but you could develop the appropriate epistemological habits in yourself to either put yourself in a position where you can accept God or put yourself in a position where you will see that God is, is a unreasonable
1: thing. Who are, you, who are you characterizing here? Plantinga?
0: I thought Plantinga, I mean, I'm kind of combining okay. a few things, but I'm just asking what you guys think about this whole voluntariness. You mean the
1: idea of behaving a certain way first in order to...
0: No, the idea of can you control what you believe? Oh, I see. Okay. The leap of faith.
3: Yeah, I think what it is is that from our perspective, it sure can feel like it. And I think that the circumstances that we put ourselves into and the purposeful actions that we take are certainly ingredients in that. But the ultimate ceiling of the deal, so to speak, comes through something which seems to be beyond our control. So again, I'm getting a little Augustinian here, but this idea that like, yeah, you can do all these actions and put yourself in the right position. And this does move you along the path, get you to the doorway. But what's going to get you across that threshold is a movement outside of yourself. You could just say grace. It's fine. <laughs> Thank you. I was trying not to. I was trying really hard. But what would the
0: atheist equivalent be then? That if you're saying, hey, believers, you should get something like Clifford's Rule. You should have more of an intellectual conscience. And I know you can't just rid yourself of this belief in God that, like Plantinga, you find you see God in every flower and every pitiful child. But, you know, you could open yourself. You could try to think more scientifically on a daily basis. And then eventually the grace of Dawkins will come into you and and allow you to finally...
3: Yeah, it can't go the other way, because what you're attributing this gifting of grace to is a divine, you know, from the other argument on what moves a person into faith is a divine movement. It's an outside influence, an inner grace that's worked upon you. So going in the other direction, let's assume that the atheist view is correct, and so you're making this appeal. You could get the believer, the theist, to act as if they do not believe, Lord knows we've had those weekends. And then you go along the path, and then at some point, you, just as I cannot will into the person who's in my congregation, all right, now, shazam! Get the spirit now! I mean, I can't do that. Just by the same notion, I think that there's nothing that the atheist could do to the theist to shazam in the moment in the opposite direction, and and in particular, the one is based on the idea of a divine intruder into our hearts, and the other is in a, a band abandoning of some notion or belief. So I, I, I don't think there's a direct equivalent, but I can kind of appreciate at least there's an equivalent in the approach between the two that you could
2: take. Mm -hmm. There's also an ambiguity in the term faith within Christian theology, no matter what language you're saying it in, whether you're using the Greek term or the Latin, in that faith certainly can refer to the intellectual content of what somebody would say to be true if you asked them what was true. It also has the connotation, though, of faithfulness or action that is in accord with the contours of this particular story rather than that particular story. And so in that sense, I think that you can talk about faith as a virtue. And in fact, you know, the New Testament does so. I mean, you know, very often Jesus will say, you know, I've never seen such faithfulness in all of Israel when he's talking to the centurion. Or Hebrews chapter 11, will talk about certain orders of life that are faithful lives because they are ordered such that they are pointed towards a world that does not exist as visible yet. So, again... What occurs to me is that there is an ambiguity in the term, and therefore there's another dimension to what you're talking about when you talk about faith within Christian theology that might not always be on the table in these conversations as, for instance, Alvin Plantinga talks about it. If Faith is exclusively the tendency to say that this is the case in the world rather than that is the case in the world. That can be entirely involuntary, but to order one's life in, in accordance to this confession rather than that confession strikes me as almost entirely voluntary.
0: Well, and I think, yeah, Swinburne has given us the Aristotelian recipe in this description of pragmatic faith where, you know, he says that it's very easy to slip into doctrine then. Once you start acting as if, then like you've bought Pascal's wager, you think, (laughs) I better act like I believe. I better believe. Yes, you can't directly make yourself believe, but going through the motions does actually get your head in the right spot. So that would be the case, even if you don't think that you jump from being religious generally to atheist or something in this way, there are certainly a lot of cases where somebody's been brainwashed by a cult or something and you need to get them back to reality <laughs> you don't want to just say oh now it just seems natural they've been uh, kidnapped by the great pumpkin <laughs> cult and so they see great pumpkins everywhere and it's all the you know surely there must be some way that we can reasonably say there's a direction toward rationality from that position and have a behavioral program, maybe with some medication on top of that, to, to to bend them toward that, that eventually is something that they will, you see this in all sorts of things, you know, coming to believe that you don't need the alcohol or drugs or whatever, you know, of course you don't just choose to not be psychologically addicted to such and such, but there's a systematic ambiguity in the role that will plays in these sorts of self-changes, that behavior and will are very tightly connected. Mm
3: -hmm. And I think that for most people of faith, the question of will and and behavior doesn't really come into play when we're talking about, does God exist? But it does come into, well, what am I going to do in response to that? The biblical notion of faith is not belief in existence, that when the Bible says believe or faith, it's trust. It's believing in God, not believing that God Mm. exists. I have a charismatic buddy of mine who was back in the last town where I pastored before this one you know, he sat me down one time and he goes, oh, goodness, Rob. He says, even the devil believes that God exists. The trick <laughs> is believing in God uh. and trust in that God. But the trick isn't for most people of faith believing whether or not God exists. The trick is figuring out what you're going to do with that. Mm-hmm. That's why some of these arguments that came up before with from Khan and that that says It almost feels like we're talking about the wrong problem. You know, when you come at it from a perspective of faith and a narrative of faith, you can't help but feel like we're talking about the wrong question. But, I mean, personally, I like forcing the question. I like talking about it. I like exploring it. But it does make it difficult when we try to blend in experience, because experience does not in any way intersect with these philosophical proofs of existence or nonexistence of God. Right.
2: And I would qualify that just a bit to say it does come into some kind of relationship, just not as decisively as sometimes folks think it might. Thank you. Yes, I agree. So it seems like the common theme here,
0: and I know, Nathan, you are explicitly of a postmodern bent.
2: Yes, yes.
0: Is But is this, you know, we keep coming back to the hermeneutic circle and the logic that you were just talking about, Rob, of it's not a matter of believing that, but believing in, of trust, but of course— unless you're already a member of that community, that doesn't make any sense. So it's kind of circular it logic is. by saying you can't convince an atheist to say, come on, trust. I mean, you could niggle at them and say, come on, you've read the Bible. You know that God is actually speaking to you and you might deny it, but that's just your sin talking. Come on, pay attention to that little voice in you that realizes that you're just actually just being afraid of of all the, you know, the rigorous moral changes you would have to make in yourself or giving up, which article is this? That's- Adams. Uh, you yep. be- Atoms. You'd have to give up control. Robert M. Adams, The Sin of Unbelief, 1987. That You'd have to give up control. I mean, that's this is why Nietzsche is looked at, is seen as, as the father of postmodernism. And, <laughs> and religious thinkers have taken Nietzsche and turned it against what Nietzsche actually believed. That he wanted to use this to say, isn't this sort of sick how somebody like Augustine especially uses this to just flail himself and, you know, looking at who's the famous saint that just was famous for whipping himself? Or is that, that describes 400 different
2: (laughs) saints. (laughs) I was going to say, I mean, that sounds like a 14th century (laughs) flagellants.
0: Yeah. It's almost that according to Nietzsche, you can't argue people out of this. You just have to argue that what they're doing is unhealthy. How do you argue that? Well, because somehow you have to believe that The idea of health is built into a person in some way, and it might be corrupted, and some people might, you know, they're so steeped in their twisted way of thinking that they can't get out of it. But hopefully we can feed them enough and treat them with respect or whatever it is that you have to do to get them feeling good and confident and not letting themselves be bossed around by tradition or whatever, and getting them in touch with their natural teleology – that exact same argument is used by somebody like Adams. You know, anybody that says, no, "No, no, our natural condition is, as Calvin says, as many people say, is is of sin," and so you can't expect that. In fact, all this Enlightenment stuff, all this Dawkinsy stuff, is twisted in that same way. It's just this fear, and it just seems it's a recipe. This postmodern view, whether it's Nietzsche doing it, and I'm I'm not being entirely fair to Nietzsche here, but or Plantinga doing it it does not make for constructive discussion. I guess maybe it can be constructive in we can agree to
2: disagree. (laughs) Is that where we're left with uh, the postmodern view? Well, let me propose something a little bit more optimistic than that. I think that if we take not only Nietzsche seriously, but also Westfall seriously, that not only are we limited and finite, but also we have active ideologies that distort the reality that we should be seeing then it becomes even more important for us to rely on our neighbors, irrespective of their faith traditions, irrespective of their confessions, precisely because we all have that original sin bouncing around to correct us, to be the voice that tells us what we don't want to hear. And so, I mean, that doesn't make it any less complex, but it does at least open up the possibility that your neighbor can be a gift to you. So I'm going to go ahead and say grace, Rob. And say that for someone convinced by Westfall, the atheist neighbor can be the best gift that God gives to us because that person might smash an idol that we thought was God and free us up to see something that has a better probability of being truer to God. Or at least that's what I tell my students.
3: No, absolutely. There's not this magic of formula or words that could push faith into someone so the idea is that we just witness to the reality that that we experience as people of faith, and we believe that there is this act of grace that would move someone into belief, but not any magic formula or thing that we could say. It just is not the same kind of argument both ways, and that's where it makes it difficult to interact here. But I do affirm definitely what you're saying is that as we interact with people not just of no faith, but as we interact with people of undecided faith or a very different faith, it sharpens our own arguments, our thoughts on what we believe. And it does allow us to smash those idols because we are so very fond of creating a God that is in our image that we spend very little time considering how we might be created in that image.
2: Mm -hmm. And incidentally, this is why I love teaching Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche and the really powerful atheist writers to evangelical students. It's not an attack on their faith, but it is flowing from my own theological convictions that idolatry is at least as dangerous as atheism is, and probably more so. And I'll refer folks to our Recur episode that was right after Gadamer that
0: connects the dots between hermeneutics, the hermeneutic circle, and reading the Bible, at least. He gets us into this. I think if your name, as Westfall is, if your first name is Merold, (laughs) you you have some problems that theology needs to uh, be there to address. (laughs) Just to be all ad hominem, to sort of wrap this up, I guess let's give some closings. As Rob keeps bringing up humility here, my thought in reading this from the beginning was some of it is just... Who wants to be the best Socrates? <laughs> How do you interpret the Socratic doctrine, the Socratic command to undermine things that you, you know, just received from tradition to actually think for yourself? And one of the ways that a lot of people have found, certainly the way Augustine reads Plato, is we can know enough to know that there's something like a God or the highest good, but then from there we are, are humble so I pointed this out what we had read Montaigne, right? Montaigne is known as a skeptic, but he's not an atheist. He's not an agnostic skeptic. He is a humble skeptic, a humble theist, in just the way Rob has been describing, of somebody that is just, you know, our reason is finite, and so we got to accept we can't say anything sensible about it, but pointing at God as indefinitely just something greater than ourselves is a very reasonable thing. It's just, why would you be so arrogant to think that you are the thing that can figure everything out? <laughs> uh, and so that's one way of being a descendant of Socrates. But clearly the uh, critics of theism think that they're also being good descendants of Socrates, of of religion itself is the thing that we've inherited that we need to get rid of. And the reasonable course is either to withhold judgment or maybe following the advice of flu, Who, again, Flew is just saying, yeah, if evidence comes in, I'll accept it. But by default, I'm going to not go out on a limb. I'm going to go forward with my life as a normal human being with a job (laughs) and concrete things. There's enough troubles in the world that I have to deal with without taking on some massive theology inherited from people thousands of years ago. I don't need that complication in my life.
3: Well, I think that if you get stuck on the idea of not wanting to inherit that which has gone before you and that that brings freedom, then that's going to mess up all kinds of pieces of your worldview. That is going to invalidate everything except for that which you have some personal experience and perception of. And so I think that that becomes a little problematic, but okay, fine, we'll sit down and we'll have a chat and we'll see what we can do for me and others like me to convey to folks what we have experienced and what we have seen and what we have felt and what's constituted our reality as we've experienced God in our lives. And I think that if anything, for me, going through this exercise, these readings, I resisted that idea of putting faith and reason up against one another, but instead saying, that both share similar problems, both seem so heavily dependent upon a singular perspective, and that as each starts to give respect and weight to experiences that were not personal, but experienced by others or seen by others, perceived by others, that we take risk. We take risk that we could be going down a false path. I don't know if that's making sense of it, but all I can say is that like, I feel like to me, a lot of these arguments bring faith and reason together more than separate it.
2: Well, I'm going to speak a word specifically to Christians who are listening, because first of all, what you all have just heard over these last two hours is an example of hospitality. So Mark and Wes are agnostic atheists like they self-identified, and yet they have welcomed Rob and myself into their digital home. They have allowed us to be ourselves and they have I even got to say grace one time Yes indeed. <laughs> and for that reason, on a very basic level, they are teaching us ways to interact with people whose ideas we find dangerous. They might not find me dangerous at all, but I know for a fact that some of my friends would find them dangerous. They have welcomed me and so also we should welcome folks who differ from us. Now with that said, I think that once again, the great value of these kinds of exchanges from the Christian side, and and I'm going to, you know, take that Rob-flavored humility here and not attempt to speak for what kind of good, if any, these conversations can do for an atheist, but for the Christian, like I said, these conversations stand to loosen up those ideas that we have that might be getting in the way of whatever it is that God might bring to us next. And like I said, you know, I know I'm stacking the deck when I tell the story that way, I am obnoxious enough to think that just about every kind of story stacks that deck, though. So with that, I'll uh, cut the cards and pass it to Wes.
1: (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, I didn't realize you found us dangerous. (laughs) Oh, no, I don't personally, but my friends
2: certainly would. His friend
0: Straw Man (laughs) finds us dangerous. No,
1: I will say that even though I'm not a believer, I believe in believers. I have often played the role of a defender of religion on this podcast and defender of the idea that faith is not irrational. It's not crazy. And that's part of why I was interested in doing this episode. I think Mark and I are in the same position in the sense that religion really doesn't play any part in our daily lives. I'm not part of any religious community. And a lot of that is just upbringing. I think for Mark and I, it's different reasons. Mark, you grew up
3: with a
0: Well, I grew up United Church of Christ, so it was was liberal Protestant. They were
1: open-minded enough to let me escape.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I would have shut that stuff down. I'll tell you what.
1: (laughs) And I actually went to school in Ireland where the public schools are all Catholic. And I believed in God, but I would tell them I wasn't a Catholic, so I didn't have to confess because I was very (laughs) guilt-ridden. And then when I got to the States, I was a young atheist. Somehow I had had a crisis of faith when I was eight years old, believe it or not. And I was a dogmatic atheist, and I would really argue with my new American friends and try to tell them how crazy they were to (laughs) believe in God. And then I became interested in philosophy, basically, and I realized that that position was dogmatic and really unfounded. So for me, despite the fact that I don't belong to a religious community and it doesn't play a part in my daily life, I'm sort of enamored of faith without being someone who has it. It's a strange sort of thing. It's like I said, not believing, but believing in believers. And I think the universe is fundamentally mysterious. And I think that God sort of is a way of locating that mystery and being in awe of it. And to that extent, I understand that. That's my closing.
3: I would have to say that I think both of you, Wes and Mark, would be incredible gifts if you were placed within a community of faith.
0: This is it. You're listening to it. You're participating but, in it right now.
3: I would love— But what's in it for me, though? All whole... right, all right. Here's the <laughs> deal. Is like, as an ambassador into that community of faith, I think that in the context of discussions of faith, of understanding how we formulate, hold on to, develop— our beliefs. I think that your ability to be gracious and to make space for others to have a, a very stark difference of belief, but still encourage discourse and hold understanding above conversion. Would be an incredible gift into a community of faith. So, what would you get out of it? Well, um, I don't know. Maybe there would be that uh, strange warming of the heart that the Methodists like to talk about um, in conversion. Uh, but uh, besides that, uh, I, I don't think you get
0: the free Zevia that we just got from our advertisers sending us free stuff. On by the, our, the way, I
1: have New actually York. gone to church in the last few years, but that was just to meet women. So,
3: okay, all right. Well, that's the first that step. Is the first step. We're and just Actually,
1: if the sermons were better, I would definitely go. This Peter von Inwagen essay, which
0: is the larger thing that contains the little bit that we read, it's called Quam Delecta, and the whole first half of it is kind of his faith journey of being an atheist and eventually converting and describes, just like you were saying, uh, Wes, you know, just how weird it was. He would be no more likely when he was a, an atheist to think about going to church on a regular basis than he would to take up a book binding <laughs> or hang gliding. <laughs> just like one of these weird things that other people right. do that you don't really understand why they would put right. the time into that. I thought it was funny. <laughs> Well, if you're going to be so nice to us, Rob, I will return the gesture to both of you. I I knew from listening to Nathan a lot recently that he was going to be right on and very helpful. Rob, since you're not on the other podcast, I hadn't heard you speak so much before. So Rob had approached us like, we want to cross-promote our podcast. So you should have on one of the people from our podcast. And eventually enough time went by. It was going to be whichever host that you were trying to promote at us, whoever has the biggest book that's selling or something that would bring the biggest audience in. And I was just like, well, who actually wants to do it? You are the one that reached out to us. You probably actually listened to our show. Who knows if the other hosts do. So I'm very uh, pleased at your contributions here, and thanks, both of you, for yeah, coming on. Yeah, you guys were great. Thank you. Oh, thanks Thank for you.
2: inviting me. I had a blast.
0: Yeah, it's good stuff. All right, next time we are going to talk about... Aristotle's De Anima about teleology in biology. Woohoo! <laughs> we are supported by your donations. Please go to parselyexaminedlife.com to make a contribution. Big donors since last time have included Ryan Muldoon, Nicholas Komanos, Chen Feng, Billy Vine, Daniel Stephan, Marcus Ashley, John Pwitz, Nancy Thompson, C. Francis Jr., Judy Harris, Brian O'Connell, Todd Mercurial Chapman, Thomas Kearns, Mary Cabell, Tony Williams, Trenton Nall, Anders Leutzen, Stuart Palmer, David Stanton, Lucas Wilson, and David Kling. Thank you to all of you and to the many others who made smaller donations or became $5 members of our member site. It's the equivalent of uh, putting some cash in the hat while we're passing <laughs> around.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I must remind you to please, please, please go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store to take a look at the 2016 Partially Examined Life. Wall Calendar, My New and Best Album, Songs from the Partially Examined Life, and our new merch options like the Nietzsche Mug. One of the songs that does not appear on that album, because I hadn't finished it yet, is the one you're about to hear, which I wanted to point out is my attempt, back from 1994, to set a poem by my wife, whom I had just met, We were just getting out of college, and she had written this poem that was so evocative for me that I immediately ran out and wrote one of the coolest guitar things I've ever written and a melody to go with it, and it is now, after more than 20 years, finally, fully recorded. It's called Let Us Meet. So extra thanks for Kim for letting me do this. Thank you, everybody,
3: and good night. Good night.
2: Good night. Good night. night.
4: Let us open our wings, in one fluid stroke, with our heads poised just so, and with eyes searching. out to meet the rising wind.